This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here with, of course, uh, the gang. Terry's with us. Cole's with us today because Jeff is away on really important business. That's what he says. Strengthening family relationships with his brothers as they celebrate their brother's weekend. With the mom and sister-in-law. Along. Yeah, so it's the yep. brothers and mom and sister-in-law weekend. Either way, it's a, it's got to be great fun because the Dodgers are now up 2-0. to zero. It's yeah. really a mom and sisters-in-law and brothers and Dodgers weekend. And Dodgers <laughs> weekend. And nachos. Yep. So mom, sister-in-law, brothers and Dodgers and nachos weekend. And the kitchen sink. And the kitchen sink, of course. So uh, we miss him, of course, but uh, you know he'll be back tomorrow. And then we're going to put him to extra work throughout the week. Mm. You know we've got we've got some cleaning we're going to have to have him do. I think it's time to get the windows done. Somebody's got to go nice. take the rugs out back and yeah, shake them. It's true. It's going to be a big weekend for him. Fall when he gets cleaning. Got to get it done today. Also, uh, we're going to be talking about terrorism. Because we just hear report after report after report. Now it's almost every week you'll hear of some terroristic act. And how are you supposed to keep your kids healthy and not anxious about this stuff? Kids and anxiety, it's on the rise. And it might simply be because they keep watching television. Well, I'm telling you how I – during the floods in Texas and Houston, I tried to kind of show my my son what was going on. Yeah. Big mistake. And, I mean, for the next next month, every time it rained, it was like, is it going to flood? I'm like, no, we're fine. We're fine. We're fine. So maybe, you know, we don't talk about that. I, do you do you share that with your kids? I mean, yeah. I don't want them oblivious. Well, I, I share it if they if are they asking ask. about it. But I think the key, too, is you can't be watching it. Because if you watch it and they keep walking by, they're wondering. I mean, if you're watching it, obviously they think it must be important. So the solution is kick him out of the room. Or... Eh. Just watch less of it. Well, no, I watch like ten minutes a day. Yeah, kick him out of the room for that. Time. Okay, that's. I mean, just go. Let him watch the train show where he learns about the train. Well, Thomas, yeah, Thomas. And then the rest of it, I, I kick him out because you know, Daddy's stories. He doesn't need to watch those. Yeah, you mean you mean soap operas? You, no, do well, you do the novelas? No, nah, they're sort of soap opera y, yeah. but it's like you know, superheroes. Yeah, I wouldn't let him watch those either. Yeah, he kind of likes I, the one with I the flash. I wouldn't let him it. watch half of what you're watching. <laughs> Or play the video game you play. The Lego Batman or whatever? No, the one you play. Oh, yeah. We don't. I don't play that when anyone's conscious. Yeah. When, yeah. So you wait till the spirit and everyone mm. goes to bed. Yeah. Once once that's all taken care of, then it's free for all. <laughs> Go for it. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> Which just means I don't play it anymore. That's good. That's good. That's what happens. There's yeah. a point where, you know, you just can't play stuff like that you anymore. You to be a parent. Yeah. Everyone it doesn't end. Then it just kind of every issue starts to get more and more serious because your kids have more agency, more will. They have car keys. Oh, wow. Some yeah. of them have a job. They have cash. Then they're just gone. Yeah. Then you're kind of like an advisory committee. Yeah. And more, yeah, you're kind of like the bank. Well, you're the bank. Yeah. And you're the insurance company. Hmm. You're kind of like the federal government at that point. Really? You just enforce the the most important basic laws and then make sure nobody gets hurt. All right. That's supposedly what they're doing. Parenting sounds awesome. Yeah. Super great. So we'll talk about how to talk to your kids about terrorism. Also, uh, holy cow, you won't believe it. A 
police hunt. We'll get to this one about a, a moped gang. See, I knew it was just a matter of time. Mopeds, weaponized. What are you going to do? And they are. These guys are running around doing smash and grabs. They're wielding an axe, yep. knives, really to just chase high designer bags. Right. But, I mean, they have, like, the basket on the front of the moped. Yeah. Maybe. So they can, uh, you know, carry as much product as possible. It's just got a little 50cc moped. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't seem like a great getaway vehicle. I mean, you got to have a lot of power. Right. Mopeds, you know, never know. No. I mean, you can pedal. Yeah. Right. Plus, I guess the cool thing is at any point you can get off and run faster than you're (laughs) probably driving. So we'll talk about that. Plus, uh, a woman that keeps going to prison because she keeps uh, digging up her, her deceased dad. Wow. Yeah. You didn't really hear about that kind of a no. infraction, but okay. It's good. It's all good news. But first, let's get to the uh, the real news with Terry South. Terry, what should we be paying attention to? With winds dying down, fire officials Sunday said they have apparently turned a corner against the wildfires that have devastated California's wine country and other parts of the state over the past week. And thousands of people got the all clear to return home while danger from the deadliest, most destructive cluster of blazes in California history was far from over. The smoky skies started to clear in some places. People were being allowed to go back home in areas no longer in harm's way. And the number of those under evacuation order was down to 75,000 from nearly 100,000 the day before. Fire crews were able to gain ground because the winds that had fanned the flames did not kick up overnight as much as feared. The blazes were blamed for at least 40 deaths and destroyed some 5,700 homes and other structures. The death toll could climb as searchers dig through the ruins for people listed as missing. Hundreds were unaccounted for, though authorities say many of them are probably safe but haven't uh, let anyone know as of yet. The Sonoma County authorities have located 1,560 of the more than 1,700 once listed as missing. A lot of the listed as missing were people from out of state calling loved ones, not getting them, and then calling the police and listing them as missing. Oh, yeah. When they're just away from phones. Yeah, they could be standing at a shelter. Right. So right. they're perfectly fine. We just got to put, put names with That's faces. That's good. That gets clear, scary, so. though. Uh, other news. Following President Trump's decision last week to end Affordable Care Act subsidy payments to insurance companies that lowered premiums for low-income low customers, senators are moving to introduce new health care packages aimed at stabilizing the potential turbulence from the executive order. The Wall Street Journal reports that Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee and Patty Murray of Washington have been working on a highly anticipated bipartisan health care plans for months and are expected to introduce it within days. That deal would likely fund Obamacare subsidies and provide states with more flexibility to change Obamacare's requirements. Trump has reportedly signaled his approval of the bipartisan approach. There we go. So hopefully we don't ruin health care just for spite. That, yeah. As it kind of feels like. <laughs> <laughs> Thank heavens. Something's happening. Well, I mean, he did kind of you know kick it to Congress and say, fix it, do something. So now they step up and maybe they can do something, fix a problem here. Uh, The United States and South Korea are planning for uh, several days of joint military drills in the Korean Peninsula beginning today, an occasion that prompts North Korea on Sunday to label President Trump a war merchant and strangler of peace, who has pushed the, quote, situation on the peninsula to the brink of war. Trump is due to visit, visit Asia, including South Korea, in early November. War merchant and strangler of peace. Strangler of peace. And he's lit the wick of the war. The wick of war. They're very eloquent. I, 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 like, yeah. I like their, yeah. It's very nice. I, like, I mean, I don't know that I'd like that title. Well, I think it Strangler really, of peace. I think it ups the level of discourse when it comes to, you know, two 
yeah. people trying to fight through Twitter. And it seems media. like if you wanted him to somehow kill peace, you'd use you would have used an alliteration like the oh. poisoner Ooh. of peace. Maybe you could send some tips. Yeah, I might do alliterations if I was going to try to put down the president. Something more memorable, <laughs> yeah. b- bumper sticker quality. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so I'd be a good approach to I'll foreign policy it. there. That's good. I like that. Former uh, South Texan Juvenile Justice Department employee has been arrested for felony theft after authorities say he acknowledged stealing $1.2 million worth of fajitas over nine years. Wow. $1.2 million worth of fajitas. That is a... It's a lot of fajitas. That is a lot of fajitas. Cameron County District Attorney uh, Luis Senez says or tells the Brownsville Herald that uh, Gilberto Escarmilla was fired in August and arrested after authorities obtained a search warrant and found packages of the Tex-Mex food in his refrigerator. Investigators subsequently checked vendors' invoices and determined that he would intercept uh, county-funded food deliveries and deliver them to his own customers. So he was selling them on the side, right? Oh, man. Um, the investigators subsequently checked uh, the vendors and they found he was selling them. The scheme imploded when he missed work one day in August for a medical appointment and the delivery driver showed up with 800 pounds of fajitas, but officials said the juvenile department didn't serve fajitas. Sir, we don't make fajitas. I don't know. This must be the wrong order. So Escamilla was arrested last week on more serious felony theft charges. Uh, but uh, yeah, because- He's a fajita bandito. So as he took the- Day off, yeah. and then the delivery showed up, uh, and uh, it's uh, always that plan. You uh, miss one element of the plan. You're sick for one day, and it all falls apart. We don't, we don't have fajitas here. Don't do fajitas. No, you've been doing fajitas for years. One point two million dollars. That effect. is a lot of. That, think about it, though. That's a lot of fajita. This I don't like fajitas. Have you ever noticed that when one person in your table, your group, orders a fajita, everyone yeah. smells like a fajita? They do because it's very smoky. It's a yeah. smoky dish. Smoky, steaming hot dish. And I love when they bring it out and they go, oh, it's hot, but of course it's all tss, yeah. it's sizzling from the, from yeah. the, 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 the grill. Or and you know, you're like, okay, I guess I'll take my clothes to get dry clean now. Right, because you're covered in fajita. I have a rule that you can't order a fajita. Really? Unless you want to sit at another table. Mm. It also tends to take up a lot of room on the table. Yeah. Because you have like your your like skillet thing they yeah. bring out and then there's like the – the plate of tortillas, and then you have all the fixings. Plus, don't you feel like you work at a Taco Bell if you eat a fajita? That too, because you have to build your food. Yeah. It's like, why can't this be done in back? It seems like it's an advantage, but it really is, I think it's the restaurant's lazy man dish. Oh. Because they don't have to do anything, because they just bring you the stuff. They just dish it up and hand it over. Lazy. That's why this guy's been stealing it. Is that what it is? Yeah, pretty sure. Hey, um, police are on the hunt for axe-wielding moped gang Hmm. who uh, stole designer handbags worth $400,000. Listen to this crazy story. A manhunt has been launched. They they literally – they ride around on their mopeds and smash and grab raids at designer stores in the west end of London – so far, the brazen thieves have struck at several stores, including Hugo Boss and Prada. In the past month, they've been armed with axes, knives, crowbars. Scotland Yard have linked the attack to five other similar West End raids hmm. because of the tactics using dark clothes, black mopeds. And, and, and it's basically they just come in. They overwhelm you with power, not from the moped, but from the smashing. So it's like one of these crazy criminal motorcycle gangs, but mopeds. Yeah. Without, no, no, no. What, okay, just for yeah. those that may not know, what's a moped? Moped's like a it's it's a step between a bike and a motorbike, a motorcycle. So it's like a really 
low-powered motorcycle yeah. with pedals. Yeah. So you have the opportunity you can, if you want, you, you can just pedal and you, give yourself you, you power can, that way. You might even have to pedal it, I think, maybe to get it started. When I was five, six, seven years old, my father had one of these. Did he? We'd go race around the neighborhood. Were you a member of a gang? No, we were just, my dad had a moped. It was blue. Didn't you wear black clothes? No. It was just. You had an ax though, right? No, not at all. We we're just driving around. We'd honk the horn, wave at neighbors. Hello. As we drove by, because you know we're nice. Yeah. It's a moped. It's actually something you maybe want to make fun of because it's kind of a weird. It seems like you'd want to like really have powerful like BMW motorcycles, so you can fly in, stop, smash, but grab, grab, get on your motorcycle, get out of there. This may be more cost effective, and a lot of these stores end up being in pedestrian sort of areas that aren't mm-hmm. really accessible by by vehicle like truck or car. So yeah. you can race in. Grab and then run out with your moped. They may ditch the moped real quick. Plus, they wear helmets, so you can't tell who they are. That's right. It's the disguise, and they look intimidating mm. until, they, of course, they get on their moped. With their purses. And by the way, 8,300 crimes were committed uh, by these thugs, apparently, over the last few years. Wow. They probably need to get on that and stop that. Yeah. They're on mopeds. I but mean. the neat thing about the moped is it's not a fast vehicle, so you can you could actually rob somebody while you're just sitting in there and they're walking. You just can ride right next to them, huh. cut the purse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the person on your back could do it. You're driving. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. Focus two, only on driving. Two people Safety on a moped first, yes. makes it even more um, slow. Mm. Well, yeah, there's more weight. It's bogged down. It's like a family with eight mm. in a villager van trying to make it up a hill. This is true. You're just going to have to pass them. <laughs> but these guys are trying to But Yeah, so there's an uptick you. in moped crime and uh, just felt like we needed to I'm glad let you, people know about yeah, that. No, Public I, service here. Super important. Super important. Uh, Arkansas police are on the lookout for a fake cop accused of pulling over a woman Sunday night. A woman said she was driving when a white older Dodge Charger with blue lights in the, in the grill pulled up behind her. The woman drove to a gas station, pulled into the parking lot, and the man, who she described as a six foot two Hispanic male wearing an olive green t shirt uh, with St. Francis County undercover officer um, in, in white letters on the chest. Like, so. He like spray painted something. His on identification, his shirt, his shirt says. Um, this is so nuts. St. Francis County undercover officer. When I go undercover, I make sure that my T-shirt tells people that I'm undercover. Yeah. I mean, shouldn't it just say like police. FBI or police right. or sheriff? Not undercover, undercover officer. Undercover officer. Wow. Yeah. Secret spy working for the KGB. Right. Um, according to the incident report, the man claimed uh, someone had been stopping females and he wanted to get her home safe. Oh, well. So I'm uh, – you, you may not know me, but I'm – Officer, whatever, I'm with St. Francis, as he points to his finger, undercover officer. I'm, I'm an undercover officer. Oh. I'd like to just make sure you get home safely. Right. According uh, to uh, about that time, she said an unknown person began walking across the parking lot toward her car. The suspect saw the person and told the victim she could leave. Then uh, he got in his car and drove away. The woman called her husband, who called the police. According to the news release Monday, the sheriff's office um, said the suspect is not a member of their department. And they issued a state uh, be on the lookout for the undercover officer. Okay. Crazy. He's driving a Mazda, probably. A little hatchback. <laughs> He's pulling people over. Yeah. He's probably in that van. Hmm. 
You know, people aren't very smart. No. What would you do with that situation? You had a guy standing Tasing. there. Says he's your. He says he's a police officer wearing a shirt that says "Undercover Officer." I just start laughing. Did you start I'd driving. Say, can I see your badge? Can, uh-huh. I, can I have your advisor? What your supervisor, your supervisor? come see me here? Hmm. I'm not rolling my window down. Right. I'd call nine one one right then. There you go. There's so many steps you could take here. I mean, all you really got to do is just, you know, maybe use your common sense and know that an undercover officer wouldn't have that T-shirt on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to be rude. I'm just trying to get some ideas on the table. Yeah, and I don't want to, I don't want anybody nice. to get in trouble. Right. But, you know, if it walks like a goat, quacks like a goat. It's probably a goat. Kicks a field goal like a goat. Right. It's probably goat. I don't know if goats quack, but a woman heads to prison for digging up her dad's grave. A New Hampshire woman who spent time in prison for digging up her father's grave in search of his real will uh, has been sent back after violating her parole conditions. Melanie Nash was sentenced to a year and a half to three years in prison after a hearing on September 26th. Prosecutors say Nash violated her parole when she contacted her sister Susie Nash and threatened her over her father's estate. Nash had previously been sentenced to a year and a half um, in 2015 for ransacking her father's grave. Police said Nash felt she had shorted in her uh, she'd been shorted in her share of the inheritance after her father, businessman Eddie Nash, died in 2004. So she, you know, keeps – she won't give up. the. There's another will, she thinks. Somewhere in that casket, there's a will. And you know where there's a will. There's a way. There is a way. And she's trying to find it. She's going to find that way. Even if she keeps going to jail for digging up the grave. Come on. It's in there. She'll find it. That's the problem is when you really are hoping for that money. So you got to be really careful, parents, because you don't want to – you don't want to have your daughter going to jail after you've died because the will has not been executed properly. Plus, you don't want anybody digging you up. <sighs> That's not good. Oh, the crazy world we live in. Don't you see? When you hear stories like that, don't you sit there and think, oh, my life is so good. I haven't had to dig up a grave for years. Anyway, up next, folks, we're going to be talking about how to talk to your kids about terrorism. So many stories on the news. It's pretty much a weekly thing now. What should you be saying? What shouldn't you be saying? Are there certain things you could do to make them relax a little bit and not get so caught up in it? Uh, Great advice straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. You know, in the light of recent terrorist attacks, we as adults can be deeply affected. What we don't think about as often is the the impact that these events are having on our children, the anxiety and the fear that it might be creating in them, and especially the young, young ones. Parents may worry about how to have a conversation with their children about these devastating events. So Dr. Mary Pulido joins us. She's the executive director of the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Uh, and has some wonderful suggestions for us today about how we can broach this uh, sensitive topic with our kids. Dr. Polito, thank you so much for your time and being with us today. 
Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to offer some advice to your audience. How, talk to us about this. Is it, um, is, what impact does uh, watching these things on television, hearing about the, the latest shootings, the latest terrorist acts, what, what impact does it have on these kids? You know, first of all, every child is, is different, and it will depend on their age, and it will depend on their exposure. But, you know, anxiety in children manifests differently than adults. Really, in one major way is that children, particularly younger children, they're not going to talk about it. Adults, you know, they understand that they are, they're anxious and they can talk and say, this is really troubling me. But children, particularly little ones, aren't going to, to be able to tell you, you know, that, that this is really impacting them. You know, and, and you can go all the way from even little ones two years old. They won't understand that something has happened, but they will understand or feel that their caregiver is upset. So, you know, they may start getting a little bit uh, cranky or crying for no reason, um, being a little bit more, you know, clingy. Uh, children, like, if they're a little bit older, the toddler group, you know, they may really depend on adults to sort of reassure them and help them feel better, mm. you know, and, and they will sense that, you know, mom is upset or dad is upset and, you know, it, it makes them anxious. You know, the older children... You know, that can manifest in everything from depression and, you know, being more anxious to fear of going places, fear of going to school, you know, trouble paying attention in school. They, they, they also, you know, a lot of kids act out when they're anxious. They could become a little bit more aggressive. Or the other, you know, they could also probably be a little bit more withdrawn and maybe, you know, more clingy again to the caretaker. Yeah. So it really depends, but it does impact them and anxiety and, um, you know, I think depression and, and being really worried and fearful are things that you will see in my mind if children are sort of overexposed to all the, the violence that's going on with, with terrorist attacks and they don't have the opportunity or an adult or a safe person in their life to sort of help them through it and coach them, yeah. you know, how to feel, how to, how to calm down and how to feel better. They need to be reassured. Is, is it, does it matter if it's, um, because like what happened in Las Vegas that we really don't quite understand, but right now we're not necessarily calling it, you know, an in, like an international terrorist event, but um, it has, it seems to have the exact same effect as uh, a bombing or anything else that we might see in the world of terrorism uh, worldwide, I guess it doesn't matter. The events are the same, they, and they still might induce terror in the child or yeah. on any of us. Absolutely. And, and really what you need to do is you need to find out these events are frightening. So what, what a parent needs to do is the children really, they want to know the bottom line. Am I going to be okay? Is this going to happen here? Is something going to happen to you and then there will be no one to take care of me? You know, and again, based on, you know, their age and their personality, their connection to the attacks, 
that's how you're going to begin you know, your answer. Mm. Um, the other thing with, with children and trauma is that trauma is cumulative, too. So, yes, they're taking in terrorism and things from the Internet and the, the TV or the paper or social media, but if they've also had a trauma, if they've lost, a, you know, a family member or they've been in an accident, that is, that's additional trauma. So trauma is cumulative and it builds. So you have to sort of, adults have to be tuned into that when you put all these things together, you know, children can have, um, you know, even more severe reactions if uh, the TV coverage and the Internet coverage isn't monitored. But, but, it, but it is the same, and it does produce levels of anxiety. Yeah, and I guess because I, I sit there and I think I, I really should – I mean I, monitor, I could monitor my kids and I can make sure I'm not watching it at home. But it also doesn't mean it's not coming up at school. It doesn't mean they're not – some of the older kids that might have a phone, they might be getting a feed on their Facebook feed or whatever. And I notice all my kids will come home with questions from school about right. things like that. Right. And, you know, and I think that that's, that's sort of key, what you just said. They come home with questions. When your child has a question, it's, I think that one of the best things a parent can do is sit down and say, tell me what you've heard. Tell me, yeah. you know, how, what kind of questions I, could, I can answer for you. Don't feed them questions. Let them, say, uh, let them say what it is they've learned. And then you have the opportunity, first of all, to sort of correct misunderstandings because sometimes, you know, um, the, everything flies so fast and children exaggerate things or there's fake news out there at times and children develop things that may even make them more anxious. So you can correct those misperceptions. You know, but then the other thing is you can really say, what do you want to know about what happened? And then find out what it is that's frightened them and, and talk to them about it and stick to the facts. You know, children could have heard conflicting stories that confuse them even more. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're addressing the, you know, the, the terrorist attacks, you know, you could say that this, this person, you know, wanted to hurt people and they attacked innocent people at the concert and their goal was to scare people and make us afraid and we're very sad. We're, it's a sad, sad day for all of us. You know, and your child may then raise questions about, you know, death and what comes next and depending on your beliefs, you need to answer those questions too. But the important thing is, is to find out at their pace, at their developmental level, what is it that they need to know. You know, with older children, I, I think it's an opportunity to, you know, to, to really, you know, explain, you know, terrorist attacks are frightening. And immediately after, it's very confusing and overwhelming for everyone, you know, but also focus on the bigger picture that there is also good that there are emergency responders, there are people offering, you know, their homes to help strangers, there's mm. blood donors queuing up to give blood, there's people offering free services, there's medical providers and police, you know, all really trying to do everything they can to help those that were in the attack and to alleviate fear, you know, and, and, and this, I think, helps put it in a perspective. There are many, many more people doing good in the world than there are people that are, that are, that are causing, you know, terrorist attacks. 
And I think that for the older children, too, it's an opportunity. They can even, you know, you can find a way for them to give back. Yeah. You know, and, and contribute. So very often there's community drives when things like this happen or people want to get involved in something in their local community to support each other. And it's, it's a nice way to, to help your child develop sort of that, that empathy and community consciousness and, and contribute to the good. Contribute to the fight for the good. That's great. What do you do when you – because you also could have kids at different ages, right? And I could have a teenager and then down to an 8-year-old. Um, is this something that we, we really should kind of take our kids one by one where they are developmentally and at whatever stage? Or – I mean because I could see us trying to be efficient. But this is somewhere where we probably ought not be efficient. We ought to be really effective. Yes. I think you definitely should take the separately – you know, little children. It, it may be in, they may want to draw. They may, they may. It may be easier to help them limit their anxiety by having them do things that that where they can express their emotions, such as drawing pictures, give them something to to color. They may want to write little messages. You know, do something that is age appropriate for for children that are five or six or seven. And I personally do not. I think that. Children under six shouldn't be watching the media, and we need to shield them from these things as long as possible, and I'll go into that in a minute. Yeah. But I think that, you know, the older children are, that's where you can go more into doing things that will help um, make them feel that they, they can be part of a supportive answer and a rebuttal to all these horrible things that are happening in the world. I think... Um, for the for the little ones also, you may want to distract them more. You know, there's there's a time to talk about it, but then playing a game with them, taking them to a movie, having them do something that's fun, again, it will in- decrease their anxiety and it will increase their safety. Because for the younger children, what they really want, they want their questions answered, and and you should answer them. I think in as as uh, uh, again short answers, but stick to the facts, tell them what they, they need to know to understand, but then it gets to a point where you want them to then go back to normal and try to try to have a normal day and play outside or go, you know, sit down and play a game with them or turn on a funny, a funny cartoon show that they like. But with them, it's more getting them back into a world where, yes, bad things happen, but I'm, I am here to keep you safe. Yeah, no. And safety you, you, is really what these children need because um, – and then going back to, you know, I just think with all the media exposure, you know, I, I personally believe that children under the age of six, they, they very often have a hard time processing, you know – what's happening and that it's not particularly with the media playing things over and over and over again they're not really some of them cognitively just can't figure out that it's not happening over and over again right right and and violence you know has also been shown to you know make them feel that between the internet the movies the news video games social media you know children can come to view the world as being sort of mean and scary and we really want to protect them from that until they have a better understanding of how terrorist things happen and that they happen, but then it's, it's not an ongoing thing and that there are many, many people working very hard 
to keep them safe as well as, you know, the people in their home to keep them safe. Mm. But I do think um, you need to limit it. And I do think parents, too, sometimes you just have that news on in the background and you're not even aware that your little ones are picking it up. No, right. You know? and, yeah, it's just That's noise for you. But it's it's noise for you, but then all of a sudden it, uh, they are noticing it and it is traumatic. And um, is there... I mean, I, I guess part of this is preparation too. It's it's the ability to make sure they feel safe and then give them the information they need. If if trauma is additive, is effective management of trauma um, uh, kind of a, a not additive? That wasn't the word you used. You had a better word for it, but um, it, it seems like cumulative. if I cumulative. So if if trauma is cumulative, then is effective management of trauma cumulative? The more I effectively handle these scenarios with them, does it just make them stronger and stronger to be able to be resilient to what they're seeing? You know, you're, that's, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that I really encourage parents to do with children, and this is starting as young as you possibly can, is to work with them on con- concepts of safety. And safety starts, you know, here at the New York Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children, where we do safety planning in many areas, but one is just body safety to prevent child sex abuse. And Mm. when does that start? That starts in kindergarten. It starts when your child's taking a bath. Who's allowed to touch you? Under what circumstances? What does body safety mean? You know, what are your private parts? That's one concept of safety. Children crossing the street. You teach them how to cross the street. What What is that type of safety? Traffic safety. You teach them fire safety. What do we do if there's a fire? And I, I do feel that when they're old enough, that when things come on the news or the paper, um, you can use these as teachable moments with your child, too. Mm. You know, and this, this is the time where parents should sit their children down and talk to them about a family emergency safety plan. You know, and, and I think when if, if parents do this on a regular basis and they work it as part of my job is to keep you safe, and so now let's talk about what would we do if we got separated in a shopping park or a, you know, or a, an amusement park or something happened, you know, who would, um, who would you contact? How would we get in touch with each other? What would happen if you're in school or, you know, we, we're separate? Who, who would you go to? And you work these things out in advance and then you reinforce them. You know, where's a meeting location if we're, if we're separated, how do you call 911 if you're home and something happens? You know, and I think if parents take this time and sort of, you know, again, sit down and, and say, this is what we have in place, um, that, again, will make the child feel better. And cumulatively, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, this is another way my parents are making me feel safe. And it builds. You know, and it should be building all the way from when they're like three years old all the way up to, you know, to a teen. And at teens, they probably need everything reinforced again because there's sort of a whole other set of rules out there when, they're, when they start to be off on their own even more. So true. And you look at that. I mean, really, these are all skill sets that they need to become uh, healthy, effective adults. And 
uh, I mean, I guess it never ends. It's not just always even safety issues. It's also just you know managing emotion, understanding emotion, recognizing emotions in others, being able to talk about what you feel. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, again, some children are going to talk and yep. some children are not going to talk. And I think you just have to be mindful of sort of taking their cues and not pushing them. But the fact that you can just say to them, you know, I there's been a lot of upsetting things happening in the news lately and I want you to know that when you're ready to talk about it or if you have any concerns about it, I'm here to, to, to listen to you and I'm happy to talk with you about it. But, you know, please know that I, I, my role is to, to keep you safe and, you know, many people in our community and our government and all over, you know, the world are, are working really hard to try to make sure that, you know, these types of things don't happen. But I think it's, you have to sort of take your cues from the child. But, but you know, if you do notice that, that your children are, you know, upset or depressed or acting out or, 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 you know, being, I think, not their usual, you know, bubbly selves at school or whatever, it, it's a time that they w- that you should sit them down and, you know, make sure that, that the anxiety level hasn't reached um, sort of a problem where uh, it's going to cause them trouble at school or, or, or trouble with their friends. And, and you know, two, but I think most parents can tune into their children pretty easily when, when, um, when one of these attacks happens and, and sort of, you know, use a Geiger counter. If they're always talking and all of a sudden they're withdrawn, I think that, you know, again, they're very frightening, but uh, by offering yourself and just letting them know that you're there when they're ready to talk, that's half the battle. Yeah. And I know you uh, you made a good point um, in, uh, I think, in your Huffington Post uh, article that uh, also watch out for how you're doing emotionally because you you may be more impacted by it than maybe your children and even your own behavior to what's going on might be creating even a fear in them. Absolutely. First of all, you know, and I also think we need to limit how many times we watch the repeats. Yeah. Because the repeats are there, and, you know, once you see it, it's it's there. You cannot unsee something, and it's there. It's in your brain. You need to know. You need to know what's going on as a parent. But the, the constant repetition, in my mind, doesn't serve many of us well. I think that you, you, you can limit that as much as possible. But you can have very strong feelings about what happened, and you should monitor your reactions, too, because it's not uncommon when something, you know, happens that, that you're preoccupied or you're a little bit more, you know, reactive, hypervigilant, you know, sort of jumpy. Um, sometimes people are just very sad. They're sad that these things are happening in the world, but you also have to realize that particularly if you're little children, they will react to that. With the older children, I, I do think it's okay to say, yes, this has upset me deeply, you know, that, that these innocent people were harmed and it has made me very sad, you know, but that I think, um, you know, we will get through this and all these people are trying to help now and what can we do 
to help the community be stronger. And you'll serve as a role model for your children, and it'll reassure them that, one, you are there to have these very difficult conversations under very stressful times, but that, two, that you're, you're saying to them, I feel, I feel bad for these people. I'm going to do something to help, you know, and if we do this together, we'll both feel better, you know, that we're making a contribution to the good. But you have to keep tabs on yourself. You know, I think that uh, parents have a lot of stressors, but I, I do feel that sharing how you feel with your children, um, as long as it's age appropriate, is a, is a very good way to, to role model for them. Absolutely. And I look at it and I, just, I think in the end it's anything we can do to communicate uh, and get our, our feelings out, but also, but do it in a way that we're paying attention to these kids. It's so easy to just not uh, not give them the, the the not be paying as close of attention as we need to, especially during these events. Uh, Dr. Mary Pulido, thank you so much for your time. Again, Mary is the executive director of the New York Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children, um, and just a wonderful resource I think for all of us to better understand how to 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 get through hard times and um, the traumas that we are experiencing and seeing throughout our our country and the world. We will continue the journey doing what we can on this program to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives with you and your children. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. A little coaching corner for you. You know, when it comes to um, people around us that we love, we care about them, we want to, to have these strong, great relationships with them, and uh, then they come to us with a question about, you know, what's going on in the news. And if you're not careful and you don't pay close enough attention, you may just get into your lecture mode. You may just turn into, you know, the enlightening one that's going to just download the great wisdom and pearl of life. But really, maybe what your kids need is a chance to, if they will, express themselves. But if not, just to have some gentle, you know, reassurance. We, I, I can just see somebody whose, you know, child comes up and starts talking about the shootings in Las Vegas, and instead, what we end up talking with them about are the latest, uh, you know, the latest headlines. We start talking about gun control. We start talking about a political position on it or, um, you know, the number of guns that he had, the amount of ammo, explosive whatever targets that he had, all these other things. And none of that really is what they're after maybe. Maybe what the kid is really after, like we learned earlier, is safety, just to know and have reinforced that they're safe, we're secure. This is kind of a one in a, you know. One in a million thing, and it's kind of random. It's not going to happen to us. If it does, this is what we could talk about, what you would do. But um, just because we have a lot of information out there in the world doesn't mean most of it matters, right? It, it, we talk about it. Even if, even if we talk about it, and you may have noticed after the Vegas uh, situation, every new update, every new piece of data you'd go talk to your friends about or you, you, you were in disbelief. Um, maybe there's other things that really ought to be talked about, like all of us as humans 
getting through a situation like that. More of the hero stories. So if you find yourself in a position where people are talking about all of the negative, all of the ugly stuff, you can change conversations too by just talking about the heroes and the bravery and how many lives were saved. And for 20,000 people in a concert, um, 500 injured, 250 or so that were actually shot, that, I mean that's amazing how many people got away safely. And um, it helps to be able to also see the positive side. And you don't have to be naive to the other pain, but you also don't have to perpetuate it by constantly bringing up, by constantly talking about it. We call that the appreciative approach, right? There's, there's just as much good that happened as well that would counter all of the bad. And sometimes we all need to hear that, including our kids, need to hear that there is for every one terrorist, there's hundreds, thousands of people, millions of people that are that are amazing, powerful, good people that will look after you. Anyway, a little just a heads up, a little idea, I guess, for all of us to elevate our conversations around the water cooler. Up next, we'll do a little McKenna Bouse, Bouse in the House. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. McKenna Bouse is in the house. Uh, McKenna is one of our great producers on the program, and she always brings us a little mind bender. She likes to take the crazy real stuff that we're studying and researching here in the world and uh, throw a little curveball at our lives. What's up today, McKenna? Well, today we're going to be talking a little bit about how we are able to connect our brains with computers and sort of mm. bridging that gap between the two. Because we've got computers, we've got tech, amazing stuff, and we have our brains. Exactly. And sometimes our brains don't actually ever make it into the computer. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it gets me. Yeah. You know, there's our brain is so complex and is able to do so many different things. And our technology has come a long way. We can do a lot with it. But there's definitely this gap. Our brain can still do a lot more, has a lot more potential. And yet we want to find ways to augment those abilities, especially um, in the cases of brain injury or spinal cord injury, any kind of thing like that. And so there's a lot of really cool potential out there for sort of making computers in the brain one. Holy cow. What are some examples? So, you know, out in the far future, things that people are talking about is being able to transfer consciousness from your brain to a computer. So when you die, you know, you're still here. In you're a still way. here. You're, I, yeah, your ways of thinking, your method of uh, handling ideas is like still also there. you can still, you know, all your memories are still there that can be accessed, which is really cool wow. if it, you know, we if eventually get there. And that's, Definitely a ways off. But well, but that would actually be hor- – can you imagine somebody going through your data? Yeah. Well, you know, and that <laughs> would definitely raise a lot of ethical concerns yeah. there. Um, so he did what? I know. We're, he thought what? We're, we're sort of lucky that we're not quite there yet because we've got a long way to go yeah. in terms of our society to like know how to handle that appropriately. But right now, things that we do have are like bionic eyes Yeah. Um, that it's sort of you know like a camera and it takes in info and sends it into the brain. And through the computer is able to translate that into signals that the you brain is able see. to process as image. And right now it's very low resolution. You know, it doesn't mimic what you can see yeah. with your eye, but it's 
it's the it's beginning. It's an option. It's the beginning. Right. Cochlear implants yeah. are probably the most common way that we, you know, take a computer and m- meld it with our brain with over 300,000 people using those. Are they really? Wow. Yeah. And those are awesome. They make it yeah. so people can understand speech. But there are limitations in terms of it distorts the way you hear music. Right. So, again, we still are making progress in those regards. That's amazing. Yeah. it's the bi- This is about bionics. Exactly. And bionics really are sort of this the future of the, the next frontier in terms of how we are going to integrate technology into our lives. It's um, There's plenty of bionics that are sort of one direction. It can read yeah, um, like your muscle, signals, yeah. like muscle ones that can control an arm. Yeah. And they're not super precise, but you know somebody who's lost a limb can control something because it can read those. But what we're really trying to get at are what they call bidirectional um, brain-computer interfaces, which is where your brain sends signals and operates it, but it's able to take signals oh, and send it back yeah. and get that That'll be, full that's crazy. kind of response going on. But we're having the conversation and people are doing the research, so it's really just time. It's just time. Um, you know, There's definitely a lot of different clinical trials that are going on right now, and so they're all showing that this is a possibility. This is something that can work, but they all are such short trials. Yeah. That I, we haven't been able to like really see the long-term right. growth in oh, this field wow. that we're looking for. McKenna, exciting. That's exciting news. Again, that is a mind-bender. It's, it's pretty fun. What about the day that before you pass on, they just plug you in? Yeah, it's something we you know, should start uh, thinking of. Oh, imagine what for. forms you'd have to sign there. Yeah, there's quite a bit. But hey, it'll be good for history. That's right. We it really will. anything. You'll keep everything alive. McKenna Bouse is her name. She's the mind bender here on the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, McKenna. My pleasure. We will keep the journey up next hour, a complete new hour, more insight, more information to help you live longer and love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning to you. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff Simpson and Terry South. The gang is gathered to, uh, to do what we can to make your life a little bit better. Welcome to the program. Jeff is back. Yay! From the Brothers Weekend. Whoa. Got a little excited there. Wow, somebody's got a little <laughs> butterfingers. Welcome back, Jeffrey. Glad you're alive. What, what do you mean? Oh, just all you... that partying with your brothers. Oh, it was crazy. You still smell like nacho cheese. You you must have seen my Facebook post or something. No. We bought the nachos that come in the Dodger helmet. Oh, wow. 1,700 calories. Oh, I thought you were going to say $1,700. No. It may as well have been. Pretty close. Was, yeah. 1,700 calories. Yeah. Now, you said we bought them. Well, when I saw that it was 1,700 calories and almost $20, my brother and I thought, why don't we split one? Really? And I'm glad we did, because that would have been way too much for one person. Really? I may not have been here. Yeah, you may have, yeah, you probably would have been in the emergency room. Yeah. Just so you know, I know CPR. Really? I've done CPR on about 10 people. 
Well, I, to tell you the truth, you know, you, you mentioned that you're glad that I made it back alive. Are you okay over there, Terry? Terry's getting his headphones on. <laughs> Sounds like he's... Sorry, making more noise Holy than I was hoping to. Uh, yeah. So what's your success rate on that CPR, Matt? Uh, well, gen- I don't know if you know this. Yeah, but 10 people, so, you know. Well, generally when you're doing CPR on yeah. somebody, they're dead. Well, yeah. And usually they've been dead. Some have been dead for a while. True. So I think I'm two for 10. Ugh, 20%. Yeah. It's well, not bad. Well, but like, you know, six of those were, you know, really old people at yeah. five in the morning. I just think if you're going to, you know, put that out there as maybe a bonus to well, working no. here, maybe we should know the. How know, many times have you done CPR? Uh, you know, I took some classes. There was have some... you ever pushed on someone's chest till all their, till their sternum separates from their rib cage? Not on purpose. Okay. So what's <laughs> cool about it is if I you went football. down today, I'd. Know what to do. You should have been there when I got attacked by ants. Your mother's sisters attacked you? (laughs) No. Oh. These are the the little ANTSs. Oh, those ants. uh, Not your your aunts. That seem so harmless. Check out this arm here. Holy cow. A little bit on the back here. You probably can't see as much. We're playing over the line. Okay. And do you know what over the line is? Uh, no, a, my mom a, said don't cross it. Yeah. It's a baseball game, and uh, basically it's like a, a baseball game where you don't have to run around bases, okay? It's the lazy man's baseball game. Well, or if you don't have enough people to play regular baseball. Okay. So I'm trying to make this diving catch, and I slide across the grass, and I feel this little stinging sensation. And at first, I think it's you know just one of those little prickly pieces yeah, of grass that just you a know. Prickly so grass. I, I go to pick it out, look down on my arm, and there are a dozen, a dozen or so ants just crawling all over my arm, just because of that me. one slide. Yeah. Wow. I must have slid into their Your living house. room or something. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. We had a Seinfeld moment. Let's hear that. Um, okay. So, we go to rent our car. My brother pays a little extra to get a Mercedes-Benz. Wow. And something very similar to this happens. I'm sorry, we have no midsize available at the moment. I don't understand. I made a reservation. Do you have my reservation? Yes, we do. Unfortunately, we ran out of cars. But the reservation keeps the car here. That's why you have the reservations. I know why we have reservations. I don't think you do. Oh, yeah. If you did, I'd have a car. <laughs> See, you know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important part of the reservation, the holding. So he orders a Mercedes-Benz, spends a little extra. Yeah. And we walk out of there with a Chevy Malibu and a worthless $30 voucher for the next time we go there. Oh, wow. Plus, ant bites. True. And Sounds I've like never, a bad trip. I've never been upsold or tried to attempted to have upselling so many times than at this car dealership, really? this rental place. Hey, by the way, don't diss Malibus. I didn't know it was fine. It was somebody fine. in this room drives a Malibu. It's an Impala. Oh, Thank sorry. you. It's a different car. The point is, we paid extra Hardly. for something we didn't get. We got downgraded, but we still paid extra. They didn't wow. refund any of that money. They gave us a $30 voucher, which we can't even use. So, um, yeah, they wanted, to, they wanted us to get, like, tire insurance, car insurance. They wanted us to get a toll pass. And I'm from California, and this guy was trying to pull a fast one over on us. 
And then he tried to he kept lowering the price of an upgrade to a, a better car. And man, yeah. but it was a great trip. It was a great trip. As fun as I thought it would be. We saw a movie, and my brothers like to make comments throughout the movies, uh, which you know, Makes other, other theater yeah. goers don't really appreciate. Yeah. That's a lot of. I mean, to have that's a lot of Simpsons in one theater. Yeah, make the comments. There was a guy that got up and moved to a different seat within you know before the movie even started. I think you could just tell it was going to be one of those experiences. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Well, it's good to have you back. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Lots of news yesterday. Don't know if you noticed this, Matt. Well, not I didn't. President Trump held two separate sort of impromptu, like, yeah. without the guidance of his press operations people, press conferences, which always go well. So he both wow, really? He contradicted himself in both areas, saying like Obamacare's dead, and then he kept talking about, well, that's a problem with Obamacare. I'm like, well, it was just you just said I it was dead like it. an hour ago. So all kinds of fun but stuff. But he's that good way. friends with McConnell now. Well, yeah, that's what he says. So he says he. Be, he this is part of the press conference. He had McConnell standing next to him. If you've seen the photographs, yeah. it's interesting. Watching President Trump say things and McConnell not or try not to react yeah, that to things. <laughs> President Trump's and Majority Leader McConnell reaffirmed their working relationship in an impromptu press conference after their private meeting Monday at the White House. We have been friends for a long time and probably now, despite what we read, we are probably now, I think, at least as far as I'm concerned, closer than ever before. Despite numerous reports that Trump and allies like ex-aide Steve Bannon want to remove McConnell and other Republican leaders, the president said the relationship is very good. We are fighting for the same thing. After discussing budget and tax reform proposals, McConnell added, we are totally together on this agenda to move America forward. The president has repeatedly blamed McConnell for failing to repeal and replace Obamacare. Also, their staffs on deep background with all the press are like attacking each other, the president or the speaker. I mean, so it's just like infighting, but you know. In front of the press, they're all friends. But you still have Bannon. Didn't he say something like, I'm going to do my best to try to get Bannon to oh, yeah. switch fighting some of these people. But he, it was it was like, <clears throat> I'm going to try to see if we can get Bannon to quit dismiss, or, or fighting against some of these people. That, in was, over, that was over the weekend. Yeah. So there's others that are sitting there like, oh. Yeah. Yet he wants McConnell to move the Senate, move Congress, I and mean, get... Things happening through Congress, crazy. Right. Yeah. Another note from yeah. the press conference: President Trump asked why he had not commented or called the families of the U.S. soldiers killed in Niger 12 days ago. Trump claimed that former presidents, including Barack Obama, did not call the families of fallen soldiers, sparking quick and furious outcry from both Bushes, Clinton. And Obama all saying, we all call fallen soldiers. We have bring them to the White House. We talk to them. Why haven't you talked to them? And it's been almost two weeks. Oh, man. So uh, the, Trump said the traditional way, if you look at President Obama and other presidents, most of them didn't make phone calls. All of them didn't make calls. I like to call when it's appropriate, when I think I'm able to do it. Huh? Well, isn't it appropriate? You lost soldiers. You're the commander in chief. That would be appropriate. You he says he's written letters. They're going to be mailed yesterday or early today. Boy. <clears throat> yeah. You, <laughs> you can't talk your way out of something you behave joy well, into. We'll see what the White House press conference looks like today when Sarah Huckabee Sanders tries to so talk her way out of it. What? You got, it's a phone call. Yeah. He's got a lot of calls to make. <laughs> we were going to get to it. 
Mm. Uh, even though conditions are improving, California fire officials warn that 14 large fires still not fully contained and remain dangerous. So far, 40,000 people are still under evacuation orders. Officials said thousands of displaced residents are being permitted to return to homes in areas deemed safe. Blazes raged out of control for a week, killing 41. Sonoma County, 88 people remain unaccounted for. And uh, that was a Monday afternoon. Nearly 700 are in shelters in Santa Rosa, which is part of that county. So it's just kind of... Wow. They're, they're not wrapping it up. And, you know, the wind is dying down, so they're kind of getting ahead of some of these yeah. fires. But, you know, wind can kick back up at any moment. So also, this was an interesting story over the weekend. Uh, Representative Tom Marino from Pennsylvania was supposed to be the next drug czar in yeah. the Trump administration. 60 Minutes ran a piece over the weekend about... How Tom Marino and some others sponsored a bill that made it easier for or harder for people to actually legally go after drug companies for things like, I don't know, opioids, which are oh, killing really? thousands yeah. of people. Yeah, yeah. And that evidence came to light. This happened, and now they're they're pushing now bills are all of a sudden showing uh, up so. a day later to kind of reverse that law. And uh, Trump is saying that uh, Marino has removed his name Not from a good consideration for the drug czar since he did that and took money for it it looks like crazy so can i mean did they not know that i don't know but 60 minutes showed the president because apparently he watches that show also okay because he said he watched it on tv and it was on one place so well da- so he's dancing with the stars yeah. 60 minutes and trump and friends and i mean fox and friends. fox and friends and cnn morning i love that cartoon yeah oh it's not a cartoon fox and friends i'm, I'm pretty tra- sure i get up wa- early on saturday to watch it no, have, you wa- have you watched it uh, no. Okay. They I have special powers. I don't watch cartoons. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Finally, Florida residents will have the opportunity in 2018 to elect the first known alien abductee to Congress. Hold on. Yeah, go ahead. Alien? Alien abductee. Like, not like the old term illegal alien. No, 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 no. We're talking cosmic. Visitors really? from another planet. Wow. Yeah, Miami Republican Bettina Rodriguez Aguilera, 59, claimed in a 2009 TV interview that three aliens brought her aboard a spaceship when she was seven, and the the extraterrestrials have continued to communicate with her telepathically over the years. She learned some useful facts from the aliens, Hmm. uh, such as there are 30,000 skulls different from humans in a Maltese cave, so in Malta. Oh, wow. Right? And that Florida's Coral Castle Tourist Trap, as the article calls it, yeah. it's a place to hang out, is actually an Egyptian pyramid. Oh, wow. Mm. But in Florida. Uh, she did also, not know that. She also said that the aliens had mentioned ISIS, though she didn't clarify if they meant the terrorist organization or the ancient Egyptian goddess. Not sure well, on that. Oh, obviously so, the goddess. So, I mean, you can, Florida, if you're in Florida, you can vote for a... An alien, okay. alien abductee. What do you think, Matt? Well, I mean... Should she put that on, like, campaign should, posters? I guess or? we should be... Yeah. <laughs> if he wins, <laughs> ISIS, ISIS will take credit for it. Like, they'd which, like oh, to take credit ISIS? for everything else. Which ISIS? You tell me. The ancient goddess. Okay. Uh, that's weird. Yeah. Found that story a little... Don't you wonder, like... So, is, like, her, are her signs gray? With a big moon big and a... black... Silver gloss, not silver, black yeah, glossy big, eyes, big yeah. eyes, yeah, small head, three fingers, yeah. It's what if creepy. they're just like you and me? I bet they are. Totally, little really weak ankles. Don't you think you could like if you just take an alien out, just go for the ankles? Hmm. Very long, skinny legs. I hear. <laughs> That's the pictures I've seen. 
Wow. Did you hear about the other bad news coming out of the California fires? I mean, bad news for some. Uh, apparently, a lot of marijuana farms yes. went up in smoke. Ooh. In fact, I heard an interview where they were asking about the, the wineries. Yeah. And the person didn't even talk about that. They just talk about the marijuana farms that are now Because there's like, there's like ten to 15,000 farms, and I guess a lot of them are in that area. Yeah. Well, they're both a source of uh, major income. The spokesperson for the, uh, the marijuana-growing um, farms – all he said was, um, dude. <laughs> dude. It's sad. And they're, I mean, legit businesses in the state. They're not insured yeah. because no one wants to get involved with a marijuana farm at this point. Yeah. And so it's a complete and total loss. Do it again. I guess. Just start growing. Well, and imagine thousands of acres of pot burning. Yeah. It's a problem. Just saying. <laughs> it's going to be hard to evacuate those people. Yeah. Plus just the amount of munchies and chips you're going to have to bring in. Just bring in the Doritos truck. You're fine. It's Everyone crazy. just kind of shuffles over this way. <laughs> wow. A lot of loss. Um, but at least there, it sounds like – did you see smoke when you were, in, when you were there? Because you have Not uh, really, fires in Anaheim. But uh, we were up in the Santa Clarita area and we did see mm. some burned soil and ground and – they, thankfully, no fire. I like your T-shirt. I went to California, my, and all I got was my parents went to California, and all I got they, was this lousy T-shirt. Yeah, it's mm. nice. When's your brother party? My what? Your party with your brother? We just hang out every once in a while. He lives here. So You're not going to go to California. I don't have to go somewhere to to see him. He lives about what seven, eight miles away. So you don't want to go to California? No, I mean, I ate lunch with him last week. It was great. He doesn't love him. Doesn't love his brother. I don't have a brother, so. Well, you ought to get one. I have sisters. Oh. Do you, hang, do you hang out with them? No. Not really? Mm. Not the same thing? Every time I go, they like, they want to put makeup on me and yeah. do my hair. It's kind of weird. Just like we used to do. Everybody there accused us of only going because the Dodgers happened to be playing that weekend. And, they and won. I resented that. Did, but you were there for only one game. I was there for game one, and then we watched game two at my dad's house, my mom and dad's house. On a Sunday? Huh? That was amazing. I'm not joking. <laughs> They're doing great stuff. Dodgers are killing it. They play again tonight. Game three in Chicago. Little so, Matt, what are the odds of you watching the baseball game tonight? Tonight? Yeah. He just said the game's tonight. That's what he said. Um, Inflection at the end. Not uh, – I'm trying to think what I've got going on tonight. Yeah. Probably not very good. You got nothing. Yeah. There you go. I always – You got I, nothing. No, but, like, I, it's funny. I have incredible timing. So I will flip to the game Ooh. right in time to watch the home run. Okay. The home run's not even always the best part. I went to game one. It's not the, only was it a great it's game. The nachos. It's the four hours leading up to the home run. That's probably the best part. The nachos <laughs> were amazing. Game one had the best singing of the national anthem I've ever heard. Who? It was this gospel singer oh, who, you know, was singing it just normally throughout the song. And then toward the end, he starts going into his head voice. And you think, wow, this is amazing. How could it possibly get any better? He, like, takes his head voice an, an entire octave higher than that. Really? And it was – it blew us away. Did his head explode? So then the Dodgers win. 
And then we watch game two on TV, and you think, how Hold can on, this? Game two? How can game two be better than game one? And and it was. It was one to one the whole time. Four hours. Bottom of the ninth. There you go. Two outs. <laughs> Justin Turner gets up to the See? plate and crushes a three run homer to win the game. That's why it was perfect timing for me. Just in and out. And then but, I got to I got to keep the Sabbath day holy. But you could have watched two teams over four hours score one run apiece. Exactly. And then right at the end, someone do something exciting. People you are... You could watch the entire four hours. Plus, you could flip over a few channels and then watch Aaron Rodgers get broken into pieces. <laughs> do that, too. People are talking about that home run. They're comparing it to Kirk oh, Gibson's... Yeah, Gibson. No, Joe Cannon brought that up on the show yesterday. Yeah. Joe was like... He's, well, he didn't. Like how does he know? He didn't watch it. No, he he just read about it the next morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, you know, is a sinner. Has like me, lackadaisical values. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds great. What a great trip. I'm glad you're back, though. Really, I mean, you're you do a good job. I think these ant bites are contagious, though. I know those women. So, they're crazy. They love you, though. You still don't get it. Still don't get it. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about uh, some business advice, getting some business advice about leading indicators. What are the things you should be measuring in your business um, if you actually want to have success? It's not always the bottom line that's the best metric. Uh, Leading indicators to help you reach your most important goals in business and life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. There's a lot of ways to measure the effectiveness of a company, of an organization. And if you're, if you're put in charge, then uh, really there's a lot of work and responsibility for you. One way to do it are what are called key indicators. They are figures that show if your company is growing or failing. But they can also help us in our personal life, whether you're learning the piano or trying to lose weight. Here to speak with us about key performance indicators is uh, is the author of uh, the book, um, The Great CEOs Are Lazy. He is also um, a CEO himself and and a writer and an author. Jim Sheckler, uh, thank you so much, sir, for being here. Thank you for your time. Hey, Matt. How are you? Thanks for having me. Great to, great to have you. Talk to me about... Uh, first of all, you wrote a great book, Great CEOs Are Lazy. I mean, that seems so offensive, Jim. But, <laughs> but what do you mean by that? Well, you know, some people either go, I, I knew it all along that they weren't actually doing anything in that office. <laughs> and, uh, and other people see that maybe there's something there. You know, it's meant to sort of catch your attention as yeah. a title. Um, but really, the point is that they are strategically lazy. In other words... They still work hard, yeah. you know, 50, 60 hours a week. But um, what what they do is they approach their work different than most people. And, and I'll tell you where this came from briefly. Um, we, we work with CEOs. That's what I do in my business. We coach CEOs. And so I've talked to probably two or 3,000 CEOs over the last bunch mm. of years. Yeah. And they fall into two categories. You've got a bunch that are working 80 hours a week, not getting the results they want. And then there's a group that's working 50, 60 hours a week, getting great results. And the question is, it's the same job. What do they do differently? <laughs> and um, that's what the book's about, basically. And something, I mean, part of this is really about the metric. You've got to choose 
something to to kind of fly your your airplane by, and yep. whichever instruments you choose could make or break you. Yeah, and, and I even go one step before that, which is clarity about where you're going. Mm. Um, if if your goal isn't clear, then I doesn't really matter what your key performance indicator is. So we spend a lot of time thinking around clarity of my objective. If you have a different objective, you have a different objective. You use different key performance indicators, um, and, and and we think of it like this. Um, it, you know, sometimes I like to water my garden, and when I'm using the hose, occasionally it gets kinked. And, um, you know, I could work anywhere on that hose and not get much of a result unless I go find the kink and open it up. Yeah. Well, the same thing's true in life. Um, I can do work on all kinds of different things, but unless I'm clear on where the kink is in the hose, I'm not going to get much of a result. So for us, it's be clear about your objective, figure out where the kink in the hose is, and then you can put metrics around that to make sure you're making progress. That's true, because if you're, if you're measuring turning on the hose and you're really good at turning on the hose, but you have a kink in the hose, you've measured the wrong thing. You, you get zero, right? It's yeah. probably how much water is coming out the end of the hose would be a better metric, right? Right. Yeah. But, but who, exactly I mean, I, I guess yeah. it seems like the most, like you're talking about, we got to go at first and, and make sure what our objective is and be clear about our objective. But it seems like it's easier in a way to kind of assume objectives and then just measure financials. Yeah, but, you know, uh, and just talking about business for the moment, because this, this applies, I think, both to both right. personal lives as well as business. But on the business side, um, you know, if you imagine driving a car, the financials are the result of everything I did. That, that's the outcome of, you know, serving customers and doing a good job and so forth. And really, if you use the car analogy, it's like looking out the back window. And when we think about key performance indicators, we'd rather be looking out the front window, which are finding in, uh, metrics that indicate future success. So I, it's sort of like guideposts or milestones on my journey that I know I'm heading in the right direction. And if I keep doing that, when I look out the back window, the financials are going to be great. Right. So that's the difference is sort of how do I get to metrics that predict my success Versus metrics that say, hey, last month you did a great job. That, that's a little less interesting, actually, because I don't know what to change if I did a bad job. No, right. How do you, how do you know how to do that? I mean, um, I, I guess part of it is knowing where you're going, and then you just backtrack from your, your goal, your objective, to what's the natural step between where I'm going and where I am? Or how do you know how to find those leading indicators? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a discovery process, and uh, it's probably like getting to Carnegie Hall. Practice, practice, practice is how you get there. But I'll give you an example of one um, for a business we were working with. They were selling digital printing, so fancy digital printing to companies, and they had a pretty aggressive marketing effort. And they had this sort of epiphany that if they bring somebody to their factory, and, and this was a beautiful factory, I mean, it was like, uh, an operating floor, be- yeah. super clean, gorgeous equipment, everything running like a Swiss watch. It was beautiful. They said, you know, it's funny. Every time we bring something, somebody to the factory, they become a customer. And we said, that's it then. Yeah. <laughs> that's the leading indicator is how many factory tours can you get with potential customers? Because if, if you know that everybody who comes to the factory turns into a customer, we don't need to measure sales. We just need to measure how many people get to the factory. And so they changed how they compensated their sales force, and they changed what they measured, 
and they began to have a lot more success because they were crystal clear about what was the leading indicator for future success. That's interesting. It was those factory tours. That's what did the trick for them. And it's something subtle like that that I would assume in a company setting it would come up in just in having conversations about what it would look like and and what it does look like to be successful. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's a little bit of an aha moment like that one. You know, that sort of just came out in casual conversation and we go, whoa, whoa, wait, stop, roll back, (laughs) roll back the tape. That that actually was really, really important. And and I think there's where having some other people in the room that aren't quite as uh, familiar with what you're doing can be really useful um, because it's a fresh set of eyes. And, you know, you've been doing it for so long you, you, you just you drive by things and you don't even think they're important anymore. And somebody who hasn't gone on that journey before can see it and go, wait a minute, I, that's really different to everything else I've ever seen. Let's talk about it. Because um, you can get you really know, deep, right? The, you can get so deep start. in it that you can't see the you know the forest for the trees. Ab- absolutely, yeah, that's exactly correct. Um, T- you know, on a personal level, you know, thinking about maybe losing weight. Yeah, you could use a le- leaning indicator of exercising every day. Um, it's simple, but if, if I exercise every day, you know, I sweat every day for, let's say, 30 minutes, and I do that every day for a year, I should lose weight. Yeah. Unless I, you know, up my Oreo consumption to a little bit, <laughs> offset it, but um, the idea is there that that, that that would be a leading indicator for losing the weight I'd like to lose. That's great. And then, uh, because again, it's more like, let's get on the scale. How much have I lost? That would be the lagging indicator. Exactly. I'm looking out the rear, rear view window of what happened. It doesn't, it's not predictive. It's here's the, how the story turned out. I'd rather be predictive with, with that exercise thing. Can your, can your leading indicator? So, and this is funny because every business school teaches KPIs, right? K, yep. Key performance indicators. And then there was the big movement of the dashboard. You need a dashboard to kind of have all your metrics in front of you. Yep. Um, but can, can a metric be subjective? Like, or, or can it, is it only a true measurable? Can there be a feeling like is, is a leading indicator, you know, your ability to uh, feel better um, about your body? Yeah. Um, or does it have to be truly just objective? You know, you're, you're making my hair stand up on end. I'm an, I'm an engineer by undergraduate <laughs> training. So, I'm testing your, you know, your in a German DNA. Food, so it's a bad combination. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think on a personal level, that could be okay. It's a little, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, there's a famous restaurant in Virginia. This, this is on the business side, but you'll get the point. Um, and it's a, it's a two Michelin star restaurant. It's called the Inn at Little Washington. Mm. Gorgeous place. If you ever have a chance, you want to go there for dinner. But every time a waiter or waitress engages with a table, they record how happy the table is on a scale of 1 to 10. And if they're not a 9 or a 10, and it's completely subjective. I mean, yeah. how do you tell how happy a table is, right? Um, but if they're joking and having fun and, and conversations going, that's probably a 9 or a 10. And if they're kind of staring at each other and not talking, that's probably a 5 or something like that. And so they, when, if they see somebody's below a 9 or 10, they do extra little things for them to try to push up their happiness level. Hmm. You know, a little amuse-bouche from the chef, a visit by, by the, the wine steward, uh, something special to try to move up their happiness level. So they, that is completely subjective, and uh, they use it to run their business. And their goal is to have you leave that restaurant with a 9 or a 10 happiness. That's interesting. Experience. But but it's funny because they're measuring it, I guess, subjectively. They are. But they but they're fixing it very tangibly. They go yeah. to all of the other offerings that they have to bring up the score. 
it do, it does drive drive action. Um, you know, and and on going back to the weight loss example, you know, it might show up in um, you know I'm not winded when I run up the steps, or yeah. my clothes fit better, or um, and I don't know if I would put a make a scoreboard out of that, but it would sure make me feel good about what I was trying to do. And I guess too, you could have a you could have an overall how do I feel metric yeah. that includes all of the subjective and kind of yeah. I guess like they are at the table. It's um it's really an interesting idea because it seems like in our in our professional life it's so much about the metrics which is you know what ensures it seems like profitability for companies and organizational strength but in our private life I'm not sure we measure as much do we Yeah no and um I don't think we do and and I wouldn't you know you don't want to be a machine but right. there was one single thing I was really trying to get good at or or do in life or um you know, measuring that one thing make make some sense to you. And there's a whole other line of thinking, which is why businesses do it, is um, if you don't measure it, you can't improve it. Right. So the other corollary is if you do measure it, you can improve it. And so um, I know at one point I was trying to lose weight in my life, and I know this is a backward-looking metric, which is against our idea, but I would actually have a little chart, and I would mark, you know, on a graph what I weighed every morning. And, uh, you know, when that line started tipping downward over time. I'm like, okay, we're, we're heading in the right direction. It made me feel good. I didn't measure anything else, and I know it was backward-looking. I, I could have measured exercise or, you know, snacking or something like that, but um, just measuring it caused me to think more about it and cause it to get better. Yeah. How do so, you measure something like um, your marriage or your relationship with your kids? Yeah. Um, there, I think you're in that subjective yeah. uh, kind of space. And, you know, I know people that work with with uh, couples, and they'll actually go to each, you know, when they're working in a couple's uh, situation, go, where would you rate the relationship right now on a scale of one to ten? Yeah. And, you know, and the wife might go, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nine. I'm happy. And uh, the husband might go, well, I'm kind of a five. I'm, I'm not so good. And, okay, why are you a five? Let's mm-hmm. talk about that, right? So I think you can use it. And, and even when you're just working with your spouse, you might go, how are we doing? Where are you at? You know, are you a nine? Are you a five? Are you a two? Um, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, but I want to know where you're at. And, yeah. and just that just 10-point happiness scale is a pretty interesting way to communicate where you sit. I think the next question of why is the critical question. But, um, but you know, because if somebody was a nine, I'd want to know, well, why are you a nine? Right, what's sure working? Like more of that. Whatever, yeah. Whatever's getting you to nine is a good thing to do, right? That's right. And, and I guess, too, if you're doing... Um, uh, that you could still get key performance indicators, leading indicators that of what keeps it a nine. And if it's okay, we got to have our date night. We got to cuddle every day or whatever. We got to talk every day. Whatever. Yep. yep. That's cool. Exactly right. Well, and, and you could argue that how are we doing today is a leading indicator of long term success. Right. Right. You know, if, if every day is good, then the long term success of we're going to keep the marriage together. We're going to have a happy household. You know, the kids are going to have a, an environment that is, is healthy and, and a good model for them as they grow up. Those things all happen as a result of being an 8 or a 9 every day. 
So I'd actually argue a daily check-in or something on that order is, is a great leading probably indicator. a leading indicator of long-term success. No, I think that sounds totally right. Um, some daily kind of connection check-in. Um, yeah. Do you talk about CEOs? I mean, as the author of the book, Great CEOs Are Lazy, I mean, there's a lot of attention going to CEOs today that uh, maybe they're being overpaid. Are CEOs worth the money we're paying them? Yeah, you know, when I want to make people crazy, I tell them I, I help CEOs get paid more money, and they usually their heads explode when <laughs> yeah, I tell like, them that. <laughs> are you kidding me? Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a really hard question because, um, you know, the market pays people what they're worth. Um, and that job in particular can have such a profound impact on the success of a business. You know, we've all been in a company with a great CEO where – the attitudes are positive, the, the arrows are all going in the right direction, we're growing, people are learning, we're making money, it's, it's all kind of going in the right direction. And we've been in businesses with a, a poor CEO where, you know, it's political and there's infighting and it's not fun and, you know, we're not having the success we'd like to have. And so, boy, just that's one person. And so getting the right one is such a profound difference in the outcome of the business that paying them a little bit more to make sure you have a good one um, is worth it. And, you know, the other side is, uh, that's part of why the tenures are very short at the CEO level. Mm. I think the average is now below three years. Oh, is it really? Oh, yeah. They get fired very fast. Um, and, you know, that's occupational hazard they exist. But if I'm going to pay a lot of money, I darn well expect excellent performance. And if I don't get it, the fuse on that is pretty short. Because yeah. I'm paying a lot of money. I expect the good, the good stuff. So <clears throat> I'd say... On average, they're probably not overpaid if they do a good job. The bad ones are clearly overpaid. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the only other element is within the public environment, it's a little bit of a dance that I think has become um, perhaps unhealthy, which is to say, you know, there's a lot of intermingling of boards, and we're all trying to pay our CEOs at the 75th percentile. Well, if everybody's trying to pay at the 75th percentile, all we end up is in this ever-escalating compensation model. Sure, right? right. Trying to push up and up and up and up. And I think a little of that exists, and it probably shouldn't. Um, and I'll mm. just give you the last element. And this one really is performance-based. Um, most CEOs, their base comp is not stunningly high. I mean, they're high, no doubt, but yeah. not stunningly high. Where they make these kind of stupid numbers that we see in the press is with stock, with options. You know, a guy makes $100 million. They didn't write him a paycheck for $100 million. He sold. He had options. He bought stock. The stock appreciated in value, and that's how he made the money. But think about it. Why did the stock appreciate? Right. Because he did a really, really good job. Um, And he probably made billions and billions and billions of dollars for his shareholders, and they rewarded him by paying him $100 million. It sounds like a crazy amount of money, but not in the scheme of having made billions and billions and billions of dollars for other people. Do you? What do you think about these CEOs, uh, I mean, that are now reaching kind of this it, – it's almost geopolitically. They're, they're as important as, you know, leaders of countries nowadays, whether, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook. These leaders of these companies are geopolitical leaders. It is – do you think that's a smart mix of um, not just being a business owner and a business director and sh- and chairman, but also getting as politically active as some of them get? Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, I uh, Jim's opinion. Yeah. Um, unless there's a reason why 
for the business, you need to be politically active. Uh, to use it as a bully pulpit um, probably isn't where I would go. Um, it's a choice that they're making. They have an opportunity to influence outside the sphere of business and in, in the sphere of politics and other spheres. They choose to do it. Um, uh, you know, I don't know that that's really the point of a business. A business serves its clients, it serves its employees, it serves a lot of people to create a bully pulpit for some sort of political machinations. I'm got to watch I out. Be so supportive of that, but you know, people do it. Yeah, there's a freedom of speech; they can say whatever they want to say. So. <laughs> can't stop them and it's there completely within their rights to do so it's a totally different ball game um and i mean there is a lot of pressure in that role as ceo yeah. and i mean a lot of these companies too are becoming like facebook is now getting in a little trouble because of you know how russia may have used some marketing there and google as well <laughs> i mean it's like all of a sudden you've created something the world needs so much that it can now impact so many things in our world, how just what advice do you give uh, a CEO um, or just any of us that want to be leaders in our lives in our communities? What should we do to not to actually still be you know you know putting um, putting some oil in the vessel so that our lamp can keep burning? How do we keep doing it all? Yeah, um, you know, I I think we're here to make a difference. And um, I think, and we coach this in CEOs of building purpose into their organizations. I think, you know, making more money than last year is a soulless exercise. It doesn't fill your lamp to use your energy yeah. there. Um, but if we think about the people's lives we affect and the way we change, or the way we, I work, I, I work on one board where they where they biblically tithe, hmm. and the the entire community is involved in service and giving away that tithing and. They're there for a much higher purpose than making money, and they all know it, and it, it fills them, and it fills everybody that they impact. They, you'd be amazed at how they are, have this sort of ever-expanding influence on people because of the way they act and the way they are. And so I, when, I've, when I think about in the coaching we give CEOs is you've got to build that bigger purpose into what we do here. Business can be an amazing force for positive change. Um, but you need to just sort of design it into your business. And if you do that, you're going to build more than just money. You're going to build a legacy, an impact. You're going to change the world and make it positive. So that that's where we go when we think about trying to do something different. And that's not political. That's yeah. social justice. That's helping poor. That's, you know, it, I don't care what you pick. Pick what you like. Pick what everybody resonates to, as long as you pick something um, and you stick with it. So th- those are the companies we get excited about, the ones that are trying to do more than just make money. Um, and we try to coach those that aren't to see that as a better way to go. Yeah, that's, I mean, that really is the heart of it, isn't it? Well, we appreciate you. Uh, Jim Schlechter, we're so grateful to have you on the show. Again, Jim is the CEO of Inc., the Inc. CEO Project, and author of Great CEOs Are Lazy, a wonderful book to uh, to spark your mind and get you thinking about how to use lead, leading indicators, how to get ahead in the game, and, and uh, do so, as he just said, you know, motivating the hearts and minds of the people that uh, that you're with, as well as elevating life for everybody else. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We will continue the journey of good leadership up next right here on BYU Radio. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back. You know, what a great uh, 
what a, what a difficult job. Can you imagine being the CEO of your company? Now, some of you would be like, oh, yeah, I would kill it, kill it. But it's got to be a really difficult thing to make sure everyone's happy, everyone's got an opinion, everybody, you know, thinks they could lead the company better. And then your job is to actually get it done and meet with the board. And But, yeah, but you make so much money. Um, it's interesting uh, when when Jim talked about the fact that the market is is what uh, pays pays these CEOs um, and, and you're paid, he said, what you're worth. But what, what he means by that is if I can go get millions of listeners to listen to a radio show, then um, – and they're doing it because they want to listen to me, then we can afford to pay me more. I'm not like making an argument here for myself, by the way. Um, but the point is there's a market. And the the funny thing is some of the most important jobs in the world don't get paid by the market necessarily. Um, they don't necessarily – we don't pay our teachers based on the great insights that they gave their students to go allow them to go on and create Apple um, or to create Google. We didn't pay them for that. But we pay our CEOs based on – the marketplace, right? And so it's easy to get really offended and and frustrated by what CEOs are making. Um, and so – and there's no easy way through this. Some of the most important jobs when you think about it aren't even paid. I mean being a parent, you're not paid to be a parent. You're not paid to be uh, – you're not paid anything near what you'd be worth to be uh, that nurse that just is there for you and actually connected and relating to you. Think of anybody in a job or a profession that really has made a difference and uh, they're not probably being paid for all the social and the relational stuff that matters. So um, it's hard. It's hard when we look at a world where some CEOs are making hundreds of millions of dollars and you know other people that lead huge organizations of incredibly motivated, uplifted people aren't. And I guess in the end, we have to kind of be clear about what, what really matters and it doesn't mean you just can spread the money everywhere evenly either, right? Because there are market forces at play. But it also doesn't mean that we can't uh, find other ways to respect and hold these people up. There are some things in this world that you can only see with the heart. And uh, one of those is just the goodness of other people. And a lot of times you won't be compensated on earth for that goodness. I guess that's why it's worth believing in a heaven where you might be compensated there. Hopefully someday, right? Anyway, a little thought for you. We will continue the journey. Up next, we're going to be talking about state by state, an update on what uh, Halloween candies each state likes. You're going to want to know that because you don't want to be the one that doesn't hand out the right candy bar. You don't want to be that person. Straight ahead on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, folks. Yes, as uh, Halloween is nearing, you you want to get this right. There are a few things in life that really matter. And obviously on Halloween, there's not a lot that matters. There is one thing on Halloween that does matter, the right candy. You got to make sure you are selecting the right candy or your ch- or the kids that come to your house will always see you as, you know, kind of like the dentist that hands out a toothbrush. You're like that guy. You're that guy. 
You are that guy. Or my neighbor used to hand out pencils. Seriously. Well, yeah, you, we, you put your teeth in that anyway, right? Yeah. That's why all those teeth mark. That's true. After the first year, you're like, no, nah, I'll skip that one. Yeah. I got enough pencils. He always does pencils, you guys. They're not even number two. Yeah. They weren't. <laughs> They're just, you know, random stuff. <laughs> so this is a list okay. from a online candy distributor called Candy Store. Okay. They distribute in bulk. They're a bulk candy distributor. So they look at their shipments over the last 10 years. Yeah. This is what each state is the leading candy in bulk that's purchased from them oh, in this, this state, exciting. right? Oh, this is exciting. Okay. So is it the number one candy? Probably not, but more people purchase from them in bulk. Yeah, yeah. This is a big deal. So uh, any state you want to know? Let's, well, let's start just with our home state, Utah. Jolly Ranchers. What? Really? That's not candy. Hmm. See if I can find the actual. It's That's not, an appetizer. What do you mean it's not candy? <laughs> That's not a good candy. To... Four hundred seventy-five thousand pounds okay. of Jolly Ranchers. Let's have go been to California. Purchased. See what the West Coast. That's is That's the kind of candy that makes you want to reassess your life. Yeah, Jolly Rancher. What really? am I doing with my life? I need what to get a life. California most popular Halloween candy is. Uh, it's the birthplace of Jelly Bellies, right? But they love M&M's more. Oh, yeah. yes. So cool. M&M's make friends. 1.5 million pounds. Really? Yeah. Mm. Let's do Colorado. Colorado likes... Uh, it was Twix, but it's been dethroned. Oh, oh, sorry, Twix. It's now Milky Way. Ooh, Ooh that's good, too. Milky Way. I was That was the candy bar I always got because my sisters wanted Snickers. Yeah. And some other candy bar before that. So they always gave me their Milky Ways. What about Washington? Let me go to the end of the list. Washington State. See, I have one list here that gives you like a a clever little paragraph. The other one gives you the top three in each state. Oh, wow. So it's kind of like flipping back and forth here. Washington State. Yes. Uh, Let's see here. They like, uh, they had saltwater taffy was the state's previous favorite. They would. But now it's Tootsie Pops. Over 223,000 pounds of Tootsie Pops. That is a lot of Tootsie Tootsie Pop. Pop. Yeah. How about Florida? Because Florida, we always hear stories about weird things going on in Florida. Voting for people that may or may not have been abducted by aliens. We had that story last hour. Stuff like that. It's probably Gator Taffy. They like, um, let's see here. Ooh, Skittles. Oh, yeah. 315 tons of Skittles. Can't go wrong with Skittles. Just on Sunday, a little girl gave me some Skittles that she had lovingly been warming in her hand. And Mm. they were just soft and chewy. Were they all runny? Did uh it get all over your hands? It got all over her hands. My son has a bag that his aunt gave him. Yeah. Of like a, it's like a Ziploc sandwich bag. But she had like a big bag, just a pile of Skittles. Oh, yummy. And he's been eating them. And we always look at him like, dude, you need to not eat the so Don't many. eat the Skittles. And he's like, you want a couple? And that somehow makes it better. <laughs> well, tell to him share. to watch out for that ant. Apparently, uh, somebody's been bit by a bunch of ants. I think they were mutated. Mutated ants. Uh, that's our number one of the program, folks. Stick with us. More joy, more fun, more candy insights up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. The gang's all here. Jeff and Terry are on board. 
It's going to be fun because we've got a lot to talk about. Today we'll be talking about housework. And uh, are you teaming up on your housework or is it becoming a divisive thing? Hmm. Mm, this is something you got to team up on. If I'm honest, it's done by one person, and that person is most likely not me. Oh, housekeeper. No. Spouse? Yeah. Yes, that's it's a problem. And we'll be talking about the latest research on what that does to your marriage, to your the psychology, why we think certain chores need to be done by certain people. How long does that go back? There's a there's a really interesting history that, uh, and it may be, have been the industrialization, the era of industrialized, uh, you know, employment where you used to work on the farm, and then the minute you left the farm, when you worked on the farm, everybody did everything together. We were all part of home chores. Then the minute uh, you know, dad went to the factory, that kind of created this really weird division of labor. And we'll be getting into some of that history with a a wonderful researcher that's been looking into it in depth. We'll get into all of that. Plus, there is nothing but love and harmony at the White House. Mitch McConnell and President Trump, they are best friends, BFF. Um, (laughs) Forever, it seems like they weren't friends. Maybe Mitch had dissed the Don. Maybe the Don backhanded compliments toward Mitch McConnell. Are you ready? But in the end, now it's nothing but love. A list of things that President Trump talked about in his press conference. Oh, great. Said he and McConnell are closer than ever before. Says both men and their staffs have been trashing each other in public and private for months. Oh, good. So they're they're closer than they used to be when they did that. He also went on to say other presidents didn't make call to military families of soldiers that had fallen in duty. Yeah, President Obama, he says, basically. Totally false. He didn't. But they did. And then all the presidents came back and said, hold it. Mostly the staffs. Yeah. Like former attorney generals and stuff started putting out photographs of the president in question at the Air Force Base talking to the families or doing the things that the president should do. And this is because President Trump has gotten in a little bit of trouble because there was, what, three men killed in Africa. Twelve days ago. Twelve days ago. And And he has yet to contact the families. He said he wrote uh. some letters that will be mailed today. He says he's been established that no collusion took place with the Russians. Bob Mueller is currently in- interrogating the president's associates and advisors on this very point. This all came up in one presser yes. yesterday. Yeah, just wide ranging. Oh, it was it was two separate ones. What was the what was the purpose of the presser? It seems like you would have covered that. It was right after he had lunch with Mitch McConnell oh, to okay. help unify the sure. relationship, sure. and then he just kept talking. So they, it sounds like they had a guy's weekend as well. They kind of did. Well, it, guys, well. it was kind of more like a lunch. He also said that he has the votes right now for a bipartisan health care fix. He does not. But he said he does. Well, maybe he knows something that no one else in his in the world knows. On uh, GOP senators, he says, I'm not going to blame myself. I'll be honest. They are not getting the job done. Wait a minute. <laughs> have, we, have we ever heard him say, I'll be honest? Hmm? Yeah. He said that Obamacare is finished. It's gone. It's no longer. You shouldn't even mention it anymore. It's gone. There's no such thing <laughs> oh, as Obamacare anymore. I guess it's now called Trump care. Well, if he's going to own it. Well, the irony of this is nobody wanted to own that name. Right. And it was thrust upon Obama. Right? As a it used to be it's pejorative. called the Affordable Health Care Act. Yeah. But as a pejorative, it was yeah. used against Obama. And then he now, owned it. Great. Well, now Trump owns it. I, we are I not guess. to mention Obamacare it's ever Trump again. It's Trump care. 
He asked uh, on Steve Bannon's war on McConnell and the Republican establishment. You were talking about that earlier. He said, Steve, Steve is a friend of mine. I can understand where Steve Bannon is coming from. I know how he feels. There are some Republicans, frankly, that should be ashamed of themselves. Hmm. Okay. And then someone asked him if Hillary should run. Bring it on, he and, says. And uh, uh, he goes, is she going to run? I hope Hillary runs. Please run again, Hillary. Sadly, Hillary took a fall. Did she you hear did. This? She Hillary did. fell, broke her, some toes. Her foot was caught in a uh, some cement or something. A vice. So she has like a cast on her foot now. She was, she was apparently walking downstairs with a coffee in her hand wearing heels, I guess, mm-hmm. and maybe her heel or something caught. The heel got caught and twisted. And now That's she's sad. Like, That's yeah. scary. So she, her... Uh, her events for her book, because that's why she's in Europe, yeah. is, has been cut oh, back dramatically. Oh, it was in Europe. Yeah. Boy, there's nothing worse than breaking a toe. Well, I mean, losing a leg would be the, worse. Okay. Yeah. I was trying to think. Much Wait, hold worse. On. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a whole bunch of fact-checking on the news last night. Like, yeah, wait, wait but a you second. know what? And then, and then one, one uh, Fox News reporter who asked about Hillary Clinton, then people started coming after him on Twitter, like, why are you even asking about her? I don't like it. The, and he responded that because she's running a shadow government, uh, she needs to remain part of the conversation. Oh, really? And people are like, what are you talking about? And apparently he was referring to some term that's used in British Parliament. Oh, okay. And confused everyone on, yeah. is he like, this is a conspiracy theory? What are you talking about? So that was something that happened yesterday also. This is this is There's crazy. some shadow governments happening. Okay. Boy. <laughs> Well then, it was a very eventful press conference. It was very positive, from what the president said. I'm just said. glad they're back then, together. I'm glad they're friends. If they are, we're not sure. You know they are. You think so? Because oh, Mitch yeah. McConnell would be very uncomfortable standing there. Well, I think anybody would, because you don't know what he's going to say. Right. And, you know, he Mitch has his own set of facts. Well, yeah. Mostly that there is no votes for health care, and that's why there is no health care. Well, and it's really hard to talk. Let me be honest about the GOP, and there's a lot of these people are really messing things up, and the head of the senator GOP is standing right there. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, we'll hug it out later. It's great, huh? Let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? In a speech Monday night, Senator John McCain accused U.S. leadership of promoting spurious nationalism over international obligations. To refuse the obligations of international leadership and our duty to remain the last best hope of Earth for the sake of some half-baked spurious nationalism cooked up by people who would rather find scapegoats than solve problems, McCain, who delivered the speech while accepting the National Constitution Center's Liberty Medal, is, as he says, it's as unpatriotic as an attachment to any other Tire or tried dogma or tire dogma of the past wow. that Americans co-signed to the ash heap of history. He also condemned a neo-Nazi rally rallying cry, stating that we live in a land made of ideas, not blood and soil. Which is what uh, those guys chanted as yeah. they marched around Charlottesville. Do you know what? This is so refreshing to he, have somebody that has a terminal illness right. that's willing to say really what they think. Instead of all of this hype and political... Shouldn't you know. take a terminal illness for us to get to that No, but point, everyone though. else is afraid to. Yeah. You, you hear of the, uh, the, the TV shows, the political shows, trying to book senators and members of the House after something crazy happens and no one answers a phone. 
And they're just like, what's going on? Because how Nobody do you respond? Want, they don't want to respond. They don't want to have to say that they're against what was said. And you don't want, yeah, you don't want that target put on your back. That too. Good job. I mean, whether you like John McCain's words or not, he's, a, he's now free to speak. Yes. As is Corker, uncorked. Uncorked. A North, a North Korean official told CNN the country would not consider diplomacy with the U.S. until it has developed a ballistic missile capable of striking all the way to the east coast of the mainland U.S. Oh. So now we know. Diplomacy starts after they yeah. can take out any part of the country, not now, just like okay. to Chicago. Now we got to talk. Yeah. The, the official added that before engaging in talks with the U.S., we want to send a clear message that the DPRK, North Korea, has a reliable defense and offensive capabilities to counter any aggression from the United States. President Trump has previously threatened North Korea, stating a speech at the U.N. that if the U.S. is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. So they've responded by saying, we'll talk to you once we can pick any target in your country. Oy vey. This, is this diplomacy? They say that uh, North Korea also said over the weekend that we're, that we're minutes away at any moment from a war with nuclear weapons. Well, that's good. Yeah, so just things to make you think, you know? I liked it better when we were thinking we'd be destroyed by a volcano in Wyoming. Saw a lot of uh, <laughs> 1950s duck and cover yeah. videos and uh, just captions of you know kids crawling under their desks because that's the that was the climate people were living right. in at that point yeah now what is it now everyone will be on their phone tweeting somebody when the big bomb hits i guess oh, one family's dream vacation at niagara falls turned into a nightmare this weekend when a 10 year old boy toppled over a railing and oh, fell into the gorge no way police say the boy was on the canadian side of the falls when his family decided to take a picture of horseshoe falls the largest of the three falls making up Niagara Falls. Right? Help me, eh? He was sitting on the railing, having his pictures taken by his mother when he apparently lost his balance and fell backwards over the railing 100 feet, injuring his head, the BBC reports. No. Members of the Niagara Falls Fire Department and the Niagara Parks Police High Angle River Team, so a rescue team, uh, and other medical services were able to stabilize the boy so he could be taken by helicopter to a hospital in nearby his injuries were originally considered life-threatening, but the hospital later changed his condition to serious but stable. Holy cow. So he fell in and survived and is that expected is to recover. Unbelievable. You heard of Harvey Longy. Yep. Did you hear about that? Got in a car, car accident. accident with his wife. Former BYU player. Who does he play for? The Ra- uh, uh, Patriots. Sure. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Just so, signed a deal. He's like got the best rookie, non-drafted rookie deal. Hmm. Free agent. Free agent, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Okay. And a, a legal update for you. Oh, is this about Jess' lawsuit? No, this is different. Okay. A district court in Illinois has ruled that law enforcement may force people to use their fingerprint to unlock Apple devices during their search of a house. They may force it? Yes. The ruling overturns a decision from a lower court and marks a significant increase in the steps cops can take to force people to unlock devices. The ruling only applies in one particular case with a very specific set of circumstances. Well, that doesn't help. Right. So police officers had already obtained a warrant to search a house. They were looking for um, horrible things on computers. Let's leave it that way. They expected to find at least one iPad and one iPhone on the premises. They wanted to be able to force any occupants found on the premises to unlock the devices using Touch ID during the search. The rationale was that the cops already had a search warrant for the house and for the devices and that they had reasonable suspicion that any device found would belong to the people in the house at the time. They also stressed the fact that due to mobile devices, encryption using Touch ID during the search would be the only chance they'd have to unlock the devices. 
So now they're saying mm-hmm. as part of the search warrant is the right that you have to open the computer. Apparently. In, in that one in this situation. situation. But this is the kind of thing that – That's the precedent. It's a precedent that, and then can you maneuver or however you okay. make that work. But what if they're like some of my family members that can't remember the password? Right. Not sure. <laughs> it says courts have been grappling for the past few years with questions of encryption, fingerprints, and constitutional rights. Companies, including Apple, have been dragged into the fight, and different courts have used vastly different rulings. A ruling set as a precedent to forcibly unlock phones using fingerprints is very narrow. Law enforcement already has a search warrant for the premises. They're operating on a limited time frame to begin with. So it used to be that um, they couldn't force you to use your fingerprint. Yeah. But then other, other courts are like, well, we take your fingerprint as evidence. So Why we, we can do that. So what people would do is you turn off the phone, and by default it would make you put in the password. They can't make you give you make make you give them the password because it's 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 a separate thing. There, other courts have said they can make you give up the password. So it, boy, depending on where you live, the law could be completely different as to what they can and can't do when it comes to unlocking your phone. We have ways of making you give up your password. There might be torture. You don't know. That was audio from the search warrant. That's it. So that's it's a big deal. Do, do you own your thumbprint? Is that yours? Well, or I is used that, to. Or is that something that you can be compelled to use? Well, I'm my sure. mother taught me that my fingerprints uh, were like snowflakes. No, no two are the same. No, my fingerprints were on every glassy object in our house. And I needed to <laughs> quit watching everything. Usually with some kind of a frosting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she so they are that's me, right? That I mean that's uniquely me. You have right to take that whenever you want. If they they take your fingerprint when they book you, well, yeah, that's so if that, you do something wrong, right? But, but they're, if they pull you over, you did maybe you were speeding. Is that enough to to compel you to use your fingerprint? No. Right. Well, exactly, because now they can get so much data on your phone. What were you doing when you rear-ended right. that car? Or, or that, that's when you stumble into something else. But then once they're into your phone, then they can find other stuff that you know. They would find my offshore bank accounts. Mm-hmm. They would find ooh what. Anyway, wow. Just, I mean, hypothetically. Oh, hypothetically. Oh, okay. okay. Gotcha. I'm not like, I don't Crazy. Okay. Well, that's life. Laws keep changing. Slowly, we lose more and more of our <laughs> sense of independence and freedom. Possibly. But at least, hey, at least you've got an iPhone X. Not yet. 10. And apparently, they'll have severe shortages, and people that want them for Christmas will not get them until But not March. as many people want them as they thought would want them. They don't know that yet. Apparently, more sevens are being sold than eights, even. Oh wow, it's crazy. Who, everyone's moving to a seven, which doesn't make sense because why the, would you not move to an eight? The eight is almost double the speed of a seven. Yeah. So why wouldn't you just get a faster phone? But uh, you know, maybe it's double the speed and half the or double the problems. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Hmm. Yeah. If you're paying in Benjamins, I just use credit. Then you don't even have to pay. I use Lincoln's. It makes it look like it's more. Oh, hmm. really? Just fives. Yeah. You can do Washington's, but like, that's crazy. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Let's get to the headlines. Uh, the empty news. The empty news team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. This is a big problem. Why was there an apple there? Just miscellaneous sound effect. It's just like somebody threw that in there? It's such a quality sound effect. You know exactly what that is. Oh, I know, but we've beat that apple to death. 
Anyway. So this is a problem for this uh, gunman. He was a burglar. He uh, a Florida man. He's facing a litany of felony charges after breaking into a hotel room over the weekend and holding the occupant at gunpoint until he fell asleep and the man escaped. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, this is a big problem, and it's kind of the number one reason why I had to stop, you know, holding people up no, yeah, and stealing well, from them. Yeah, you have that sleep I just, I, problem. I kept falling asleep. So and you always had to take your CPAP. Yeah. Everywhere you'd go, you'd always have to carry your CPAP in. I'd have to say, hold on, let me chug this Coke real quick. Uh, According to police reports, a guest in room 206 at the Days Inn on 23rd Street answered a knock at the door Saturday and was met by Jerry Allen Mills Jr. with a gun. Hi, I'm Jerry Allen Mills. (laughs) Junior. Junior. Mills allegedly forced his way into the hotel room and threatened to shoot the victim if he tried to run away. The two remained in the hotel room for an extended period of time until Mills fell asleep, as you can hear here, and the victim was able to escape. Sometime later, Mills wandered down to the front desk, where he was confronted by three front desk clerks on duty. During the ensuing argument, Mills pulled out the handgun, pointing it it at the clerks and pulling the trigger several times while yelling, bang, the gun didn't fire. Mill was arrested See, later that night for bad miming. I was going to skip most of the story because, you know, it's like, you know, you got yeah. armed hostage taking. This is and a big deal. It's kind of a heavy story and he's pulling the gun on people later. But he said, bang. Bang, bang, bang. So he knew it was unloaded. Yeah. You know what I mean? He didn't have bullets. Kaboom. <laughs> I'm going to throw a grenade now. <laughs> bang. That's yeah. uh, something's not right there. Here's another crook story. Okay. Love a good crook story. Uh, A burglar made a clean getaway from a Long Island restaurant after emptying the cash register, cooking a meal, and washing the dishes. What? Will Cologne restaurant owner says he found bent burglar bars when he arrived Tuesday at Nelly's Taqueria in Hicksville, New York. Security video showed the intruder put on food service gloves and started heating up a pot before hammering the register open. So maybe he's a hypochondriac? I don't know. No, he's just he's just past the health code. Classes. Hypochondriac, that's where you're afraid of all the germs and Being, everything, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Being sick. Okay. Every sickness is yours. Oh, okay. He pocketed the money and put a dollar in the tip jar. No then, way. Cologne says the man started cooking up a storm in the dark uh, beans, chicken, shrimp. Cologne says the dude had some skills. After eating, he covered and refrigerated the food and wiped down surfaces. He, what a gentleman. Exactly. That is an excellent, excellent. You know, criminal. to me, it sounds like he must work at uh, the crook cleaners. Ever wake up to find all your prized possessions have been stolen, but that your home has been left spick and span? Chances are you've been a victim of the crook cleaners. Like any good Boy Scout, the crook cleaners believe in leaving a place cleaner than when they found it. And that includes the homes they rob. In partnership with the Crook Closet, the only store where criminals can find the outfits they need to feel more confident on the job, the Crook Cleaners work hard to ensure your most traumatizing experience is also your most pleasant one. Just listen to some of our reviews on Yelp, where we have a surprisingly high 3.2 star rating. T.O.D. in Tulsa writes, I woke up to find my TV was gone. But so 
was the ring in the bathtub. Jackie O writes, My current cleaners charge an arm and a leg and do such a poor job. I felt like I was already being robbed. So it's all good. Wayne Newton Love You writes, Please, can I have my TV back? Also, can I get the name of the cleanser you used on the kitchen counter? It's so sparkly clean. And Mad Dog 472318 writes, I hope these guys burn for all eternity. There will be a special place in purgatory just for them. However, they will also hold a special place in my heart. And the best part? No appointments necessary. It's like the old saying goes, Don't call us, we'll call on you. And you don't even have to be home. In fact, we prefer it that way. The Crook Cleaners. We'll take you to the cleaners, and then we'll leave your home cleaner. How do you divide up the chores at your house? You know, household chores have traditionally uh, been seen as a woman's responsibility, even though today more women are in the workforce than ever before. And is that is that the way it should be? What I mean, how how did this even come to be a study conducted recently that uh, women spend about 14 hours per week doing household uh, chores, housework, compared with men who only spend nine hours per week. So uh, we wanted to bring in um, an expert on the subject that can help us understand the research behind what's going on with our home chores. And who better to help us than uh, Professor Dr. Renata Forsty, a BYU professor, is joining us on the phone today to talk about why household chores should be equally divided in a relationship and the real positive impact it has on our lives. Renata, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. What made you want to study, of all things, house chores? Well, I teach uh, courses on women's studies, and it's something I've been interested in. I've been focusing on women and their well-being and their education and having resources so that they can take care of their families. And women are the primary people engaged in unpaid labor, and so I was interested in how that's distributed. It really is um, it's fascinating. I grew up in a home where with a single mom that was uh, and three sisters and we had to get the jobs done. She had to go work and we had to you we had know. a lot of work to do. <laughs> but it's but it's interesting that it there, there's a history to this. Maybe walk us through how we got to where we are today in in kind of how we see our social roles. Well, in part, I mean, certainly during if you think about, you know, Little House on the Prairie and during the more colonial times and early in our history, when we had an agricultural society, both men and women had to work together. Yeah. And men often were the ones that went out and produced the raw goods, and women were the ones who were the manufacturers and worked in the home. And so it took both of their labor in order to survive, and the goods that they produced could be exchanged on the market and had that kind of exchange value. But then with the Industrial Revolution, then the locus of work has shifted outside the home. And with labor laws and changes, more and more people were able to do well financially so that men could work and women could stay home. This was more like middle and upper class families, uh, working class families. Women have already always been in paid labor. But then women could, could stay home and you had this sort of separate spheres. And so the home became sort of the the private place of women and their domain, and men were seen as the ones that were supposed to go out and work in the public space. And that sort of created this this 
change in how we think about men and women's roles and also the value of those roles because now the things that are produced in the home don't have the same exchange value right. that they had in an agricultural society. And then we had, you know, with um, World War One, World War Two, women went into the factories, worked in ammunitions, um, but then when the men came home, women lost their jobs, had to were, were taken out of the labor force, and you had the baby boom, you know, during the 1950s, when you had a, you know, small cohort of people, given the depression and the wars, and they could get married early, they could get married young, they could buy a house out in the suburbs and start their family right away. And so, again, you had this sort of middle class, and this is what we think of as sort of the traditional family. So women stayed home, took care of their children, and husbands went to work. By the 1970s, you know, the baby booms now moved into the labor force. We've had changes in the economy. We're shifting from um, a a manufacturing-based economy to a technology-based economy. And those high-paying manufacturing jobs begin to disappear. And so what happens starting in the 1970s is then men's wages begin to decline. More women go into the labor force because of different push-and-pull factors. And so you have increasingly women working, Hmm. um, but... At the same time, men aren't necessarily stepping in and picking up the slack at home. And so you have women doing what's sometimes referred to um, as the second shift. So they work during the day at their paid labor, and then they come home and work at home in their unpaid labor. Um, and so there's still this expectation. We've, we've come to see household labor as, as women's work, and we tend to define it that way, and women see it as part of their, you know, their identity. Oh boy! And it um, I get to the 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 research shows that this doesn't create a lot of family satisfaction. It doesn't no, create a lot of happiness. It a lot of tired women. <laughs> it really does. And and in turn and and um, but in a weird way, like what men that don't get why? I mean, they're tired because it it creates a weird dynamic that I could sit there and watch my wife work, but think it's her job. Right. Right. That's yeah. got to – I mean – and so one point I guess you make is there are no male or female jobs. Right. There's, there's just jobs. Right. It's just, it's just work that needs to be done. And, and my perspective is that – I mean a big part of the problem is not that it has to be divided up equally. It has to be divided up so that the people see it – you know, each partner sees it as fair. Yeah. That they're doing their fair contribution. And that's what's associated with, you know, uh, family satisfaction if you see like the division is fair. And it's, it's that if we see it as just work, and it's important work, and especially if we value that work, I think that's part of the problem. We've sort of, as a society, because the housework, the things that are done in the home are in the private sphere, they're less visible, they don't have the same, you know, they don't have a salary attached to it, they don't have that kind of status attached to it, and, and because it's seen as women's work, we just don't value it. We don't give it the same... Um, status that we do paid work out in the in the labor force. Mm. And so, you know, part of it is, I think if we actually both did it, if we were both engaged in it, and if both partners, both genders valued it, um, saw it as an important contribution to family life, then I think that would make a big difference too. Yeah, part of it. So that, some of it is, yeah, how we see it, the valuing of it. Plus, it, it seems like if you came from a maybe a traditional family Dad worked, mom stayed home, or even maybe a Christian family where that may have been instilled in in um, a church or in our belief system. Uh, it's sometimes you might 
not um, – you might just go with the historic roles instead of actually negotiating this, this reality with our spouse presently. Right, right. And, and especially as you know, more and more families depend on women to work in the paid labor force, you know, I think it's, it becomes more and more important for families to look at this as you – know, whether it's providing financially or taking care of your family – terms of housework and those kinds of tasks, they're all important in terms of family well-being. And if we value all of that and we're all willing to contribute, and then it's just this negotiation of, you know, who does what when. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I guess that's the key, huh? It's a negotiation. Do you, how do you suggest we go about making or doing that negotiation? Because I assume it's, it might be men need to maybe step up more and women need to let go more. Well, I know there's a, there was an, an interesting study that came out of the University of Michigan from the panel's study of income dynamics, and they looked at uh, single women and single men yeah. and uh, how much housework they were doing, and then when they got married. So this is, you know, going from single to married, no children. And as women got married, their housework load increased seven hours a week. And as men got married, their housework load decreased an hour a week. So just adding a husband, you know, increased, you know, an hour a day for yeah. women, and it decreased the amount of work that men did. And so I think part of it is, is how we approach it and look at our responsibilities within a, a, a couple and within a household. And again, if we value that work and we're all willing to participate, that's what you have. You have to have that first before you can actually then start to negotiate. Right. That makes sense. I yeah. Mean, I think you have to have that underlying appreciation and value um, given to the work before you can actually then talk about how you're going to divide it up. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. The appreciation of it. Um, it's, was that the same study where they were cohabitating couples? I read somewhere cohabitating couples, uh, they almost had parity in the work. But the yeah. minute they got married, the woman ended up doing more and the man did less. <laughs> yeah. And that, it's like and it, that's it's just a role. True. Yeah. It's sort of true because of cohabiting couples, they're, you know, they're much more focused on dividing everything up equally because the relationship is less stable. But yeah. then once you get married and you're in this long term, then, you know, if, you know, if that's the way the couple wants to divide it up. That's because fine. Because he's going to work full time and she's going to stay home. But even then, you know, when he comes home, is she off work? <laughs> no, right. You know? <laughs> right. Um, and I think part of it is how we just even think about that work. I mean, how many times do people say, does your mother work? Right. Or does your wife work? As if housework isn't work. You that's know? right. And I think, again, it's, it's how we value it. I think that's where we have to make sort of a fundamental change. And just think of it as work, not women's work, not just housework. It's just it's part of what we do to take care of our families. I mean, it's, you know, housework is one of those things that you don't appreciate until it's not done. Right. It's, <laughs> and that's we tend to so take true. it for granted. It really is. And it's, I mean, to, how, how hard would that be to spend, you know, 50 hours a week doing something that nobody appreciates? Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like got to be so empty. And even if you love doing it, you would still hope that somebody would recognize it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in part, too, because women tend to do more of the daily tasks that have to be done over and over. You know, you never clean the last toilet. You never cook your last meal. You never wash your last, you know, load of laundry. Um, men tend to do things that are more, you know, you mow the lawn. Um, they're done, you know, small, you know, take care of the car, those kinds of things, which are done not, you know, daily. And, um, you know, sometimes you can... 
there's more value attached to some of those kinds of things because they're somewhat more visible. So I think part of it is just, you know, I, I think appreciating that is critical and valuing it as, as a couple, both partners, you know, yeah. not just valuing the financial contribution, but valuing that, that unpaid labor and how important that is to the family well-being. Does it um, – and then like you say, it may not matter how, how we divide it up after that. You, you use the word – it really needs to be, I guess, fair, fair. Not, not equal. Like it doesn't have to be 50-50. It just has to be fair and perceived as okay, perceived as right. what you want. Yeah. Well, and you know, I've, I've, I've run into students you know, in the grocery store and, and realized that, oh, you know, he's the one that does the cooking because – He's a better cook than his yeah. wife, you know, and that's the way they've divided it up. So I think it's just, you know, I don't think it has to be 50-50. I think it just has to be perceived as fair. And is it, you know, studies have shown that most women, you know, like 60% feel like the division of household labor is not fair. And most men say that they don't, they do less than their fair share. I mean, they know they're not. They know doing. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, and I do less than my fair share and I feel guilty. And I still don't change. What a jerk, <laughs> Renata. What a jerk. And it's – so it really is it's – I mean a part of it is like I'm tired. I've been working all day but so has she. Right. <laughs> and we right. don't – we just don't see it. So it's about appreciating it. It's about valuing it. It sounds like it's also then about having those conversations and really, you know, more hands make lighter work. So we – I also sit there and think why aren't our kids doing more? Yeah. Why aren't we getting everybody more involved? More involved, yeah. And that, that helps make it more visible. And I think if everybody's contributing, you're going to take better care of things. You know, you're not going to come tromping across the kitchen floor with muddy shoes if you're the one that just mopped it clean. Right. <laughs> That's so true. You, you know, you, you take better care of your possessions when you're engaged in, in that kind of work. Is um, and, and I guess overall, then what you see, Renata, in the research is you would actually see more family satisfaction, more life yes. satisfaction. Yes, I mean we've we've looked at cross national studies, and certainly those families where men are in more engaged in household chores, and you know women have more of a say in decision making. Um, those those are the families that have higher satisfaction. That's good stuff. Um, what would you? Any advice that you just give? Um, about maybe the whole idea of stereotyping and because it seems like it's so natural for us. And then we might even chalk it up to like even our religious ideology where, you know, that's just how God made it. Uh, God made the woman the cleaner and the man the earner. And there you have it. But um, how do we not stay so entrenched in old beliefs? Well, I think it takes, you know, being willing to sort of branch out, you know, I mean, to take that first step. If part of it is women have to, you know, be willing to not be gatekeepers, you know, yeah. so that they have to not see their, you know, household chores as, as just their identity, that it's part of the whole family. And so that they encourage, you know, their children and their spouse to participate. Um, but at the same time, you know, men who are willing to set that example and to become involved, I mean, generally, there was another, another study that was a qualitative study, and Arlie um, Hochschild was looking at men who do and men who don't, and she found that men who do participate in housework tend to have um, better family lives. They didn't necessarily grow up with a role model, but they um, had a very you know, strong sense of their 
self and, and their masculinity. They didn't feel threatened to participate hmm. in household chores. Um, they were willing to draw the line at work and come home. And they had, you know, happier family lives. And so I think part of it is, is how we, if we don't identify men's worth just based on their paycheck, um, and that we also value their contribution as fathers and husbands in the household. And if we don't just identify, you know, household work as women's work, and we value what women can contribute outside the household too, you know, then I think that's going to create more of an environment where we can work together and appreciate the contributions of each of us. And this, and the truth is it's going to change over time too. I mean, as your family situation changes and you age and your opportunities change, you know, I look at my father now who's retired and he's a much more involved, you know, grandfather, mm-hmm. <laughs> much more willing to help around the house than he was before. And I think in part it's because he doesn't feel like he's having to compete, you know, in the b- business world and that his status doesn't come from a paycheck. It, his joy Boy, comes yeah. from his family interactions. So I just think it's, if we, I think we have to, you know, work on those stereotypes on both sides, not just the household side of seeing household work as women's work, but also not, you know, valuing the contribution that men make and seeing that as an important part of their role, not just, you know, their paycheck. Yeah. And and why would we want to narrowly, so narrowly, um, you know, uh, you know, categorize somebody as, She's just the house care person and I'm just the outside person and instead broaden those roles. Well, yeah, and especially because the most important part of it is your relationships. It's right. It's really not, you know, how clean the bathroom is or how big your paycheck is. <laughs> That's it, huh? Uh, well, we appreciate you, Renata. This is, I think, great insight for all of us and in reality um, so so needed and not not happening. And, and I think not happening for a variety of reasons. But uh, you've, you've helped us a lot. Again, Renata Forsty is her name and uh, the research here at BYU. She is the director of the Ken- David M. Kennedy Center for International Studies and an associate international vice president as well. Um, we appreciate uh, her great insight on this topic. Hopefully all of us are, are seeing that there's bigger roles we have to play than housekeeper or breadwinner. We are also spouse and father and teaching the importance of work to everyone in our family. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, folks. Uh, By the way, happy Mulligan Day. Today is the day that... uh, you get to take a mulligan, which is derived uh, came from the 1920s when Canadian golfer David Mulligan made a mistake during the game, and so he retook his shot. And from then on, we've been calling it a mulligan. You get to just try again. So if you blow it today, just take a mulligan. It's not a big deal. Just take a mulligan. Then this is a perfect day to share these stories because we have a couple of people here that probably need to take a mulligan. Yeah, they need to take a mulligan. Yeah. So we've been talking about thieves all morning, and here's another one. So a would-be thief in Rio de Janeiro uh, uh, apparently chose the wrong gym to rob. Uh Uh-oh. So surveillance camera footage shared widely on social media shows the man entering the gym (laughs) 
and jumping a turnstile after arguing with the receptionist. Several seconds later, the man is seen jumping back over the turnstile and fleeing outside. He is chased by several jujitsu students <laughs> dressed in uniforms. Oh boy. Jiu-Jitsu teacher Edgar Neto told the Associated Press that the incident happened Monday night and he reported it to police. The man managed to escape. Police said Wednesday he hadn't been arrested, but they have recovered one of his sandals that fell off during the chase. Ah, so now they will know when they find him, they'll be able to put a sandal on him and know that it was the guy. It'll be like Cinderella, Mm -hmm. where they'll be able to take his footprint, you know, from when he was a baby. You don't don't try to sneak into a jiu-jitsu you know, joint. You're going to pay for that. Exactly. They can yeah. break you 500 different ways. In the end, it'll be the sandal that gets them. It's always the sandal. Ah. So uh, here's another strange one. So there is a group of 15 Ronald McDonald's guys dressed up as the Ronald McDonald clown. Like from, a, it's like from, a gang. It's like yeah. a Ronald McDonald gang. They mobbed a Burger King branch to taunt the staff of the Burger King by chanting something derogatory about the quality of the food. Uh-huh. I think it's interesting that the they are uh, coming from McDonald's, <laughs> going into a Burger King, you know, insulting them about but their food. I have a hard time believing this was a McDonald's sanctioned event. Mm, you never know. You never know. It's true, I guess. So McDonald's mascot mob burst into a Burger King location 165 miles west of London. Footage shows the mob wearing the iconic yellow onesie and red hair, accompanied by Ronald's rival, the Hamburglar, Uh as they chanted at cashiers. A witness claims the scene went on for around five minutes before the gang tired, shook hands with the Burger King employees, and left. So it ended... Amiably, at least. That is a violent bunch, though. Yeah, but they ended by shaking hands. But I thought, you know what? This is how you know that that's that's a rogue. That's a rogue McDonald's Ronald McDonald gang, because the Hamburglar was there. McDonald's is probably the last uh, establishment that should be getting on Burger King's case for not having quality food. Hold it! Don't disrespect. Or you're going to have 10 Ronald McDonald's show up here and meet you after the show. Don will be one of them. Yeah. Donald Don- McDonald. Donald McDonald. Um, by the way, that's 10 Ronald McDonald's but affiliating with a felon, the Hamburglar. Oh, yeah. I mean I always found that weird that McDonald's was promoting a felon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The stealing of hamburgers. So that you know is the hamburglar that put this gang together. Oh yeah. And what what did they get out of it except just pride? I guess of taunting. This is bullying gone bad. <laughs> this is really bad. And oddly enough, it ended with a handshake. Yeah. But hmm. what was on the hand? Ooh. See. Clown makeup. Yeah. A lot of white makeup. And red lipstick. Well, there you have it, folks. It could be worse for you. You could be working at a Burger King and have a gang of thug Ronald McDonald, you know, players and the Hamburglar coming in messing with your location. Scary. We'll continue the journey. Up next, we're going to get a little uh, 
feedback from Leanna Tan about which, uh, what did she choose? Did she choose the corn maze with scary people or kind of the benign corn maze? Straight ahead, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Yes, that is the scary music, and the scary music is always means that Leanna Tan is in the room. <laughs> Leanna Tan, one of our great uh, producers here, she every once in a while she'll throw out a tangent. And last week we talked to her about she had she was being asked out on a date with friends, and they had to decide if they would go to the scary corn maze. Or the non-scary corn maze. She really preferred the non-scary, but did want to make sure that there was caramel corn and um, a lot of good churros. Okay. <laughs> Leanna, welcome to the program. Thank you. We asked you to come back and give us an update on what was your decision. What what did you choose? Okay. I'll, so my decision was I didn't really want to go haunted, but I said I would go with a huge group. If there was a big enough group, I would go to the haunted part. No, is this because you didn't want to go with this guy? <laughs> I just wanted as much protection as possible. Are you saying this I'm guy can't saying, protect you? I'm just saying I wanted a lot of protection. Okay. But we then, understand. so we bought the tickets. We? Right? Okay. So he bought the tickets. Okay. <laughs> they, were, they went Dutch. They went then, Dutch. Yeah. No, he bought them, and um, so he can't. He, he's protecting you enough to be able to pay your ticket. <laughs> yes, but listen to this: everyone else bailed, but three of us. <laughs> so it was me and him and my friend. Did they Even bail? Nene, Holy Nene bailed. Did they bail, or did something? Because she's pregnant, so she couldn't handle. Well, yeah, life, you don't so, want to do that. Know, Maybe I something know, but... happened to each one of them one at a time. <gasps> did, have you called them? Are they still around? I I don't know. I saw one of them yesterday, and they were like, you're alive. So let me get this straight. So you said I'll only do it if there's like 50 people, and in the end, they're all like, yeah, for sure, we'll get you 50. And then in the end, it was you, not so protective guy, <laughs> and a third person. <laughs> yeah, it was me and my boyfriend. and Oh, your boyfriend. <gasps> oh, is that what we're calling him now? Okay, sorry. I'm no, no offense. So I had to cling to both of them. Two wonderful men on both sides of me. Oh, so you had two, <laughs> two men boyfriends. And you. Yeah, yeah, two boyfriends. And then you went to the haunted one. And we did the haunted one. We did the normal corn maze for yeah. everyone first, and then there was a haunted trail that we did. Oh, the haunted trail! I was scared for my life. It was. Did it? I I, had, I thought I was gonna I don't know throw up or something. Oh, don't do that. I thought I was gonna faint. So. But I, for your pleasure, I um, I recorded okay. the whole thing. Oh, this is great. So we can listen yeah. to you going down the haunted trail. Exactly. So here is a reliving of my traumatic experience. So what are your uh, strategies to stay alive? Close my eyes. Think about hot springs and Chinese food. How am I in the line? We could uh, just kind of lighten the mood and like skip through it. Okay, okay, so you're gonna, we're about to enter, we're about to enter. Hey, are you closing your eyes, Anna? I'm almost crazy. You think he knew I was scared? <laughs> I think it's so bad. We're stuck in this tiny little poop thingy. Oh, I think something touched me. Oh my god. Chinese food and hot springs. Chinese food and hot springs. Is it gone? Oh, it's so the heck is that? Oh my god, where the heck are we? 
<laughs> this is quite a bit to go. Are you this serious? This is just the corn part. Oh my gosh. Ow, it's like pulling my hair. <laughs> my ear! I'm sorry. Ow. Ow. Your shoulder ran into my face. Oh, are you okay? Are you yeah. bleeding? Are you okay? <laughs> are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> I wanted to get out! Oh my gosh, I can't open my eyes. <laughs> oh my gosh, my face. Your nose is taking a beat. Oh, my whole body. I don't like this one. What is that? <laughs> oh my. Let's not go towards it. I didn't know we should have censored that. It's wow. a lot of potty mouth there. It's, oof. It didn't sound like it was two men and a woman. It sounded like it was like 50 16-year-old girls. It was? That was crazy screaming. It was terrifying. So yeah. that doesn't sound appealing. But I have to be honest, what Nene said was true, that it was, I mean, it was scary while while we were there, but it was a great bonding activity. And at the end, yesterday I had a great time. I laughed really hard listening to all of that. Oh, yeah. That we captured. Why so. is your nose swollen? <laughs> yeah. Ran into my face a few times. Um, so you said somebody's shoulder ran into your face? Yeah. But that wouldn't it Courtney's really be? part was also true. I also got beaten up. I was in the you middle did. and I just got took all the beatings to my face like So why two boyfriends? Like, yeah, why two why'd you bring two boyfriends with you? I needed you? all this I mean really it's not very flattering because I could would have clung to anything in there. I could have clung to my high school math teacher. Oh, Whatever wow. was there, I'd have Was been, he there too? <laughs> I think he was. He's the <laughs> one that Mr. jumped out. Roberts? From... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can so. I cling to you? Um well that sounds fun, kind of. You should do it. Yeah, that's Next not weekend. happening. Let's take all of you. <laughs> no, let's not <laughs> let's do that. Let's do it. Let's do it. Wow, Leanna, that was intense. But fear can be comedic, I guess. I did, by the way, did you did it engage your desire to hold your boyfriend tighter? Like I said, I would have clung to anything, but I guess I was glad it was him. But. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, oh, okay. that's where, and by the way, for those listening, that's where her boyfriend got the nickname Cornbelly. Because I it's it a was corn maze. He could shoot corn out of his belly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Any way to strengthen a relationship, just take them into a haunted corn maze. And And pop them in the nose. Yeah, exactly. Great advice from Leanna Tan. Thanks for the tangent. Hey, that's hour number two of the program. More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show.